that way. This is the 1st of November, 1994. Today is my first day of writing the new Star Wars series. I took my kids to school this morning. Uh, my oldest daughter was sick all night. I got no sleep whatsoever. This is my life. This is the hole I live in, a cave I hibernated. I have beautiful pristine yellow tablets ready to go. Fresh blocks of pencils. I'm all set. All I need is an idea. What if dreams came true and you could be who you wanted to be? You could do what you wanted to do and you could help who you wanted to help. What if dreams came true and the world opened up? and you were never, ever afraid. What if dreams came true? But dreams do come true, don't they? It is the beginning of the Star Wars saga, the first chapter. This movie will take you back a full generation to tell the story of Anakin Skywalker, who will one day become the mean Darth Vader. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. That the movies? An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. I want to be completely surprised when I sit down in the theater. I want to sit down. I want everything to be brand new. This is the movie event of the decade. That's why we're here. All of us. There's no way it's going to be a disappointment. Are there any of you that think this is going to be a lousy movie? It was so intense. I mean, I was, my heart was beating. It's still beating now. And I just screamed, literally. It was amazing. It was everything I thought it was going to be and more. I mean, I don't want to bag the movie, but I really didn't think I cared about the characters. It had good effects. I'm not too big on the acting, but hey, that's just me. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Um, God, I'd put my feet up if I could. Thumbs way down. You didn't like it? No, I, I think I deserve a public apology from George Lucas. Well, I don't think anybody's going to walk away disappointed from this movie. It is spectacular. I had a great time watching it, and I'm sure everyone else will, too. It'll be a great movie 20 years from now. It'll be part of six great movies. Unless the next two really suck, but I don't think they will. <laughs> Hello there, welcome to episode 9 and what I guess we could consider season 3 of the Star Wars at the Movies podcast. My name is Steven Danley and uh, it's been a while, but it's great to be back. As you may have figured out by now, this episode marks the 20th anniversary of a particularly significant milestone in Star Wars theatrical history. Yes, 20 years ago to this day, episode 1, The Phantom Menace, came into being and our world would never be the same. So the goal here is to reflect on just what that meant for Star Wars then, and what it means now. And thankfully, I'll have a lot of help. You're about to hear a number of stories from fans that capture that sense of anticipation, excitement, confusion, disappointment, jubilation, and overall hysteria that was Star Wars moviegoing in the summer of 1999. Regardless of how one felt or currently feels about Episode One, the energy of that time for the franchise was simply unforgettable. In terms of my own memories, I think the first time I'd become concretely aware that a prequel was coming was in June of 1997. 
My mom had a subscription to Entertainment Weekly, and, and my jaw just dropped when I saw the cover of the June 13th issue that had some of the photos of the new cast on it, uh, and particularly Ewan McGregor as a young Obi-Wan. Flashing forward to November 1998, my 8th grade history class was on this field trip to the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, and I distinctly remember seeing from my window on the school bus this giant billboard along the 10 freeway that had the teaser poster artwork with uh, young Anakin walking solemnly in the desert with Darth Vader's shadow looming behind him. It was so visually striking, and I was genuinely excited. Uh, And then I thought to myself, hey, isn't that that kid from Jingle All the Way? Huh. You can always count on me. <laughs> I completely missed the infamous teaser trailer when it came out, uh, but you'll hear a lot about it throughout the episode. However, I was not going to miss whatever trailer came next. Whether it was through the Star Wars Insider magazine or the Grapevine at school, I'm not really sure, but I knew exactly where I was going to be on March 11th, 1999. Gateway Country. <laughs> We know a lot of you want to look before you leap, so we built Gateway Country Stores, where the computers are working online and yours to try. Visit our stores or call 1-800-GATEWAY. Get a Gateway Essential PC with an Intel Celeron processor for as low as $28 a month. You remember those weird dairy cow farm-themed computer stores that started popping up in the 90s? Well... One had just opened up in my hometown of Goleta, California, and I was uh, primed to utilize their high-tech PCs with their, quote, high-speed internet to view the episode one theatrical trailer. I rode my bike down to the store and slyly stationed myself at one of the demo stations, opened up StarWars.com, which loaded much more slowly than I had anticipated. Aha, uh-huh, there's the trailer link. Here we go, and... Quick time opens, okay, and nothing. Just a blank screen with the playback toggle ticking forward at a tedious pace. After a quarter inch of buffering, I just couldn't wait any longer and pressed play. Alright, this is it. There's a few seconds of ominous music and some weird new sound effect, but uh, no picture. So I had to make a decision. Do I wait this thing out with a sliver of hope that it might eventually work? Absolutely yes. After what seemed like hours, the video file finally finished downloading, and I pressed play again. No picture. Ah! Who cares? This is gonna sound awesome. (laughs) So, just for fun, here's exactly how I experienced the Phantom Menace theatrical trailer. not condone a course of action that will lead us to war. A communications disruption can mean only one thing. Invasion. At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. Begin landing your troops. We haven't much time. The Federation has gone too far. The death toll is catastrophic. Our people are dying, Senator. We must do something quickly. You must contact me. 
There is something else behind all this, Your Highness. They will kill you if you stay. And I can only protect you. I can't fight a war for you. I think we're going to have to accept Federation control for the time being. This is a battle I do not think that we can win. I will sign no treaty, Senator. You said people are gonna die? Once those droids take control of the surface, they will take control of you. I was not elected to watch my people suffer and die while you discuss this invasion in a committee. Get to your ships! They will never get me onto one of those dreadful starships. Always two. There are a master and an apprentice. QuickTime exclusive trailer apparently set an internet record with three and a half million downloads in its first five days. The audio alone was enough to get me totally hyped. It also planted the seed of convincing my parents that we needed a new computer, you know, to uh, help make schoolwork more efficient and to get with the times. Dial-up was going the way of the dinosaur. We needed a brand new gateway computer with cable internet stat. And while all of that was true, it was also fueled by the prospect of downloading that trailer again, and uh, all future Star Wars trailers as the prequels unfolded. And the pitch worked! In addition to finally watching the teaser trailer, I remember frequently downloading the online versions of the short TV spots, often referred to as the tone poems. These character-focused ads appeared in May of 99, and you may have recognized the one for Anakin at the top of the episode. I'm going to play a couple more of them here, and try to think about these within the context of having never seen episode one. There are things I cannot do. I cannot watch while people suffer. I cannot sit when something must be done. I cannot judge those who are different. There are things I cannot do. Run. Hide. Ignore. There are things... I cannot do, but there are certainly things I will do. It will be a hard life. One without reward, without remorse, without regret. A path will be placed before you. The choice is yours alone. Do what you think you cannot do. It will be a hard life. But you will find out who you are. Fear. Fear attracts the fearful, the strong, the weak, the innocent, the corrupt. Fear. Fear is my ally. we only knew that Darth Maul would speak just a fraction of that much in the actual movie. But anyway, 
I feel like these ads really hit what George was going for, at least conceptually. They gave the movie a sense of pre-release gravitas. This was serious. Bound to be epic, even. And we were so close. As for the moment of truth, there was no chance my parents would let me go to a midnight screening, but my mom did hatch a plan to get my siblings and I out of school for an early morning screening on opening day. The place, as was always the tradition, the majestic Arlington Theater in downtown Santa Barbara. Seeing a new Star Wars movie for the first time on the big screen still puts me in a state of tension. Not quite anxiety, but certainly heading in that direction. And that all began with my initial viewing of The Phantom Menace. I remember being slightly baffled by that opening crawl and feeling pretty uneasy up until the Padre sequence. And I recall looking sideways to see my awesome sister-in-law, who had generously and bravely lined up to buy the tickets a day or two before, just understandably passed out asleep during that first Senate scene. I was blown away by the lightsaber duel and John Williams' new score, but really, I felt kind of numb. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. I think it was the theatrical experience that really meant the most to me. After all, I ended up going back to see it four more times that summer. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Star Wars fans go see Star Wars movies in the theater again and again, even when they're not sure they even like what they're watching. And they went in droves for episode one. It broke the standing box office records for first day gross with 28.5 million to overtake The Lost World. Its five-day opening at 105.7 million took down Independence Day, and it was by far and away the domestic and worldwide leader that year, with big-time, critically acclaimed films like The Sixth Sense, Toy Story 2, and The Matrix trailing substantially behind. How? Why? Well, it was partly Manifest Destiny. The movie was playing on an estimated 5,000 screens nationwide, and exhibitors with opening day engagements were mandated to show it in their largest auditoriums for a minimum run of 8 to 12 weeks, depending on the market. That meant a constant presence of trade negotiations, midi-chlorians, and gungans at the multiplex throughout the entire summer. That said, I hope the following tales of frantic trailer downloading, compulsive toy buying, painstaking line waiting, and all-around pandemonium involved with the film's release will help humanize those box office numbers a bit. All right, on to the feature presentation. Sir, a transmission from the planet. Refreshments are available in the lobby. And please, keep our theater clean by disposing of trash in specified containers. And remember, gift certificates are available for any special occasion. Enjoy the show.
my first guest is a familiar voice. Here's a chat with Brock Walker from Murray, Kentucky. I was thinking about this when initially putting the podcast together. In a way, I really have episode one to thank for my now 19-year-long friendship with Brock. It was the Phantom Menace toys that actually stirred the collecting bug in me again after a few dormant years and led me to go back and finish my set of loose vintage Kenner figures. And uh, I'd bought a blue snaggletooth from Brock from a long-gone web forum. I think it was collectstarwars.com, maybe. Uh, anyway, you know, we started chatting after that, and the rest is history. Oh, Matty Big, the voice. So, Brock, when did you first find out about the movie, and were you pretty wrapped up in the hype leading up to it? Uh, well, to be honest, I don't really remember exactly when I heard about it. It seems like I heard about it on the radio, but I mean, you know, it's been 20 plus years ago and there was a time when they were advertising the, the Zahn trilogy books on the radio, you know, billing them as, you know, the, the next, you know, sequel trilogy to the original films. And then, uh, it seems like they kind of tied into it somehow. And then there was this announcement, I guess. And I, but I got wrapped up in the hype pretty quickly or whatever. I mean, I've been waiting since, you know, Jedi for anything. Cause I wasn't a real big fan of the books to begin with. I, I didn't read a lot of that stuff. So, you know, this was my first inkling that we're going to have star Wars on the big screen again, like, you know, new star Wars. So yeah, I got wrapped up in pretty quickly. I started, you know, watching all the stuff on TV from like entertainment tonight and MTV and uh, watching the countdowns online. You know, you know, there several different websites had like, you know, clocks counting down and watching live updates from, you know, and some of your bigger cities had lines that people were seeing like they were in lines for months waiting for tickets for this thing. And I was watching updates from that and just, you know, anything that I could, you know, find I was into as far as, you know, reading about it and watching it and everything. It was crazy. Yeah. So what was the the scene like in Murray? Did you guys have to line up for a while? We did. We didn't have to wait months, thank, you know, goodness. But uh, I, I sat in line for, I think, 46 or 47 hours, so almost two full days outside or whatever, just to buy the ticket. And then, of course, as soon as we bought the ticket, we got right back in line. And, you know, sit out there, which, you know, I sat by my, you know, Shannon had to work and stuff. So she would come and go as, you know, she could or whatever. But I took off from work. I told my boss at Terrapin Station that I'm sorry, I'm not going to be here for a few days because I'm sitting in line and, you know, this is important. And, you know, it was kind of funny because we ran like, uh, of course, Terrapin Station was a music store and uh, I was a manager there. We ran a promotion where, you know, they come out to the line and they had people signed up and they gave away soundtracks and, you know, for the movie and all kinds of stuff to kind of help promote the, the store, you know, via the movie and everything. So it was pretty cool. But uh, the, the line was, you know, for Murray was pretty good. I mean, pretty good size. It wrapped around the building, you know, not twice, but close to twice. And, yeah, but we had a lot of fun. I mean, I met a bunch of people I didn't know at the time, and we, you know, set out. We had a blast, and it turned into a tradition after that. We did it for every prequel from that point forward. And this was at the the Cherie, right? The theater you'd mentioned last time you were on. Yeah, yeah, at the Cherie, the the one I've seen, you know, Jedi in, and the one you know I've been going to my whole life. Okay, so did you and Shannon make it to a midnight screening? Did you guys have more of a group with you? We did. We did. Uh, wasn't. Yeah, as far as, you know, my circle, uh, well, we sat in line together about tickets, but once we got there, like her boss uh, at Movie World, uh, or Movie Rental Store that she worked at, he was a big fan and a guy that I graduated high school with, so he joined up sitting with us, uh, you know, and uh, Ben was there, uh, which you've met before locally, uh, Gordo was there, you know, we, we, yeah, we didn't sit in line together because, you know, I ended up buying the tickets for everybody because they just couldn't get to the line, but, you know, we went up. When we got to the uh, show that night or whatever, all sit together or, you know, 
right smack in the middle. People were dressed up and there were lightsabers in the air and the theater owners were throwing Frisbees, you know, with Star Wars logos on them. It was crazy, man. It was a lot of fun, though. I mean, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so what were your, your first impressions? Me, personally, I enjoyed it a whole lot more when I seen it the first time than I did after I thought about it in a while. I, I really come out of it excited about it and thought, you know, that was crazy, mind-blown. Of course, you know, I was young and, you know, wasn't putting a whole lot of stock into, you know, how quality of a film it was, but just enjoying the ride. But there was several people next to me to come out really bummed. I remember Gordo was not a happy camper when he come out of the theater. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I guess we should say the, the aforementioned Gordo is a, a longtime friend of Brock. And uh, yeah, I could, be, I could see him being a little cynical about this one. Yeah. I mean, it was funny because I was sitting there and the guy I was mentioning, uh, my, uh, Shannon's boss or whatever, uh, he was sitting next to me and he seemed like he was completely bored through the whole movie or whatever. But the minute, you know, whenever Darth Maul first appears, you know, on uh, Naboo or whatever, the doors open up, he shot up, he grabbed my knee like I thought he was going to squeeze it off or whatever. I mean, it, it was it was intense. And from that moment forward, you know, everybody seemed like they had a good time. But when they come out, it was still like, man, that was long. And man, that was slow. <laughs> but, you know, as the years have went on, I've actually grown to where I think I like it more now than I did when I seen it the first time. You know, and as much as I enjoyed it, I, it it's, and I've got to where I, I'm a pretty big fan of that film. Yeah. So did you go all in on the merchandise? I did. Uh, I, you know, I did, you know, pretty much like I do now with my collecting whatever, I, I keep it strictly toys for the most part. You know, toy line, you know, Hasbro, Kenner, whatever at the time. And, uh, I can remember they had a midnight opening of the toys at uh, the local Walmart. And when we got there, probably, I don't know, 10 o'clock or something, we thought, well, we've got to go early. You know, everybody's standing in line for everything else. We'll be standing in line for this, too. It, it wasn't a joke, man. It was both ends of the aisles were completely blocked off, you know, because they wouldn't let anybody down them. The lines were, you know, down the other aisles, wrapped around them. People were trying to get through the whole you know, from one end of the aisle to the other, one side of it was nothing but Star Wars. I mean, which you can't find that in a store anymore. Now you barely, you know, have like a two-foot section, you know. But, I mean, it was episode one from one end all the way to the other. And then at midnight when they pulled the cart back that they had blocking or whatever, it was a madhouse. I mean, and and, and, I, and people think I'm exaggerating. I mean, with me being small, I use it to my advantage because I could crawl under people to get the things that I want. And that last that lasted for about 10 or 15 minutes, people just going nuts. And then I think somebody finally realized that there's plenty to go around. So everybody calmed down and people started helping each other. You know, and people were like, you know, hey, I found a Darth Maul. Who needs a Darth Maul? You know, or whatever. And I mean, Darth Maul was the thing that everybody was scrambling for. And, you know, uh, I ended up buying two of every three and three quarter inch toy that they made. I didn't buy any of the off the wall stuff. You know, I didn't buy like cush balls or anything like that. But <laughs> so no, no Jar Jar tongue lollipops then? No lollipops. Uh, I got some of those for Christmas, but I didn't actually uh, uh, buy any that night. You know, uh, you know, no one, no bot bags or anything like that or whatever. Just, I, I, you know, I stuck to the figures and the vehicles and that kind of stuff. And of course, and, you know, at the time my collecting was buy two of everything, open one up, keep one sealed. And, you know, so it, it was, it was crazy. Did you have like at one point a giant Darth Maul beach towel? Am I just making that up? I did. I did. No, you're not making that up at all. Uh, it was actually, <laughs> this is really funny and 
probably embarrassing for her, so she'll probably be mad at us anything, but it was a anniversary gift for our one-year wedding anniversary. Shannon bought me the Darth Maul towel. I mean, it wasn't the only thing I got, but it was one of the things I got or whatever, and we still have that towel to this day, and, and Bronx uses it on the regular. It's, I mean, he takes it to the beach. He still, you know, it's the towel he uses when he gets out of the shower sometimes. And it still looks like almost like the day it was bought. It's crazy how well it's held up. But for the longest time, <laughs> for the longest time, we talk about embarrassing. My uh, modern collection was overflowing in my room water, but the Darth Maul towel was like the rug in the center of my room. Ah, okay. It laid in the floor and it, it was like it. Yeah, okay. It was probably when I, the first time I came out to visit. I, I think that is probably, probably the first time you come over, you've seen it sitting in the floor. And at that point, you knew that I was the most awesome person you'd ever meet. <laughs> and you guys still have it. But we do. We still have it and we use it all the time. It's great. <laughs> oh, that is just awesome. Um, so you've told me this before, but I think it's worth sharing. You've basically funded your entire collection as it is now from just one purchase of episode one action figures. Is that right? That's yeah, it is. It's a crazy story. Uh, back whenever me and Shannon were first married and I was still trying to buy, you know, every time a wave of figures would come out, I would try to buy at least one of each, if not two of each. And we were young and both had part-time jobs and, you know, how it is when you're young and, you're, you know, kind of struggling just to make ends meet or whatever. She finally come up to me one day and said, hey, you know, I don't mean to be rude and I like that you like collecting, but we just can't afford for you to keep buying figures every time they come out right now. It's just not possible. And she, and she wasn't being, you know, like you hear, you know, the, the spouse that says, you know, you can't collect toys. I don't like them. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, she was just being, you know, responsible, you know, because here I was. And, you know, I wasn't going crazy, but I was buying one of every, you know, toy to come out. I think it was after the um, uh, Aunt Baru wave may have been, you know, whenever she had this discussion with me. And it was, you know, and it, which was, I think, also right around the time that. So one toy started coming out. And uh, so she kind of put the clamps down on that for a while. And I swear if it wasn't the next day, I get a phone call while I'm at work at Terran Station from a buddy that had just went to Mayfield, Kentucky nearby, about 20 miles away. And since they had uh, the Captain Panaka wave from episode one, it's just come, <laughs> he'd just seen them on the shelves. I thought, oh, man. Oh, back to kind of what Shannon said. She, she had told me this. She said, if you can find a way to fund it and pay for the toys yourself, feel free to collect all you want. We just can't keep using our income for it right now. And so uh, I went to her, and I was nervous, but I went to her, and I said, you know, I know you told me to stop buying toys, but let me borrow $60, please, and I will never ask you for another dime. And uh, she reluctantly agreed, and uh, I took the $60, and I went to uh, Mayfield. I bought uh, two of each figure that they had that was new. Uh, I can't remember exactly how many it was off the top of my head right now. I know it was the Panaka wave, though. And I come home and I immediately threw uh, half of them up on eBay, made double my money, gave her the $60 back, and I've never asked for another dime for a Star Wars toy since. Man, that is just insane. It, it is. I mean, and it, it, it's insane when I go back and I think about it or whatever, but it was maybe the best thing she ever did for me. You know, because at the time, if I just kept spending income money, A, you know, who knows, she might would have divorced me by now. But if if that wasn't the case, you know, there's no way I'd have been able to afford the stuff that I buy now using that kind of, you know, whatever I had to self-build. And, you know, people can say flipping this and that or whatever. It was just a matter of, hey, if I, you know, want to buy something, I've got to sell something. And, and that's the way I do it now. If I buy something, I usually have to sell something. 
my Star Wars fund has been really low since at times and it's been really high since, but I've never went back to her and said, Hey, I need to borrow this amount of money to, you know, buy this new toy. It's always been from that initial investment of $60 that I gave her back. I've never looked back. Thank you, Captain Panaka. That's right. That's right. Maybe, maybe I need a Panaka focus now at this point. <laughs> yeah, I can't compete with Ron though. You can't take a Royal Highness there. The Hutt's a gangsters. So, how do you feel about the movie now that 20 years have passed? You know, I've always been able to look at the movies and say that typically any Star Wars, whether it's good or bad, is better than no Star Wars. Because the worst that's going to happen is you're going to go to the movies, you're going to, you know, buy your ticket, you're going to spend two hours, you're going to come out and be like, yeah, that sucked. But, you know, you, you lost two hours. whoop you do? You know, it's, it's not a big deal. So, you know, I go into these things thinking that even if it's bad, you know, it's still better than not being able to go do it. So, you know, looking back on episode one now, I mean, is it better than the original trilogy? Absolutely not. It's probably not even better than anything in the sequel trilogy. But it's not that bad of a movie. I mean, it's 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 aged really well. You know, I think looking back, it's, it's aged a whole lot better than episode two has. And, you know, I, I, I look back on it and I like Jar Jar. I mean, is he annoying at times? Sure, you know, but so is a lot of people in the original trilogy. You know, it's it just, it is what it is. And, you know, I, I enjoy it. And it helps now, too, as I've gotten older, having a nine-year-old son that enjoys the movies, watching it through his eyes makes me appreciate it more, you know, which, I mean, his favorite character and everything changes by the minute, literally by the minute. But I enjoy it, you know. Uh, I, episode two, not so much, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to have you back on when, in three years when we do a 20th anniversary on Attack of the Clones. Yeah, and it's going to be a whole different version of me by then, I promise. But no, you know, episode one, I look back on it fondly. You know, I, I've had this argument with people, I and mean, I've been telling Bill Wills lately, you know, how well it's aged or whatever. He thinks I've lost my mind. But, you know, I, I enjoy it. I mean, it, there's definitely elements of it that aren't great, but I think there's a lot of really good things in it, too. And you know, I, do, I think it's aged well. I enjoy it. All right, well, thanks, Brock, for uh, leading off here. Absolutely, anytime. Glad to do it. Tim, it's been over a year. It's been 18 months, Daisy, and it still hurts. Well, I didn't think Phantom Menace was that bad. It's time to make the first of several trips across the pond. Here's Matt Fox from the United Kingdom. Hello, Steve, and hello, listeners. It's Matt Fox from the UK here, and back at the end of the 90s, uh, I was working as a cinema manager, always loved film, loved movies, and um, it seemed like the perfect job where I could sort of keep a bit of a tab on what was going on, and I used to read Empire Magazine religiously, I'd look at uh, websites like Ain't It Cool News, and uh, Star Wars tidbits of information were, were hungrily consumed. Um, I remember the uh, announcement of the title, The Phantom Menace, and um, not really knowing what to make of it, you know, I guess I was expecting perhaps a title that had something... Uh, you know, rise of the empire or something that you could sort of get your hooks into and you could relate it back to what you knew about the original trilogy. But The Phantom Menace was such a nebulous title. I didn't really know if I liked it or not, but, um, you know, kind of went with it. And since then, I kind of like the title, actually. It's rather good. Um, obviously, um, we had the uh, the amazing teaser trailer, and I'm sure that other people are going to mention that, um, which was back in November 98. And um, uh, after that, uh, which I used to watch that, obviously, at the, uh, the cinema, I'd, I'd nip in and, uh, <laughs> and watch that teaser trailer multiple times when we had it playing before movies. Um, but uh, around the same time, we also received the first teaser poster. And I'm sure you remember the poster. It's um, uh, Anakin outside the sort of the domed Tatooine hut. And 
his shadow is Darth Vader. And I thought this was, you know, very unusual for a Star Wars poster. They'd all been artworks before, but um, here we had a photographic poster doing something a little bit avant-garde. And um, that actually applied for um, for all the, the prequels. Each of them had a, a teaser poster, which was photographic. And the uh, the main poster um, was by Drew Struzan on all three. And they were actually, uh, I thought the actual Drew Struzan posters were, were very nice. Um, they had a, a lovely consistency. And um, the Phantom Menace poster is actually my favourite of the three that um, Struzan painted for the movies. So um, when I received that teaser poster, um, I, I Obviously, we we put one copy out in prime place in the cinema. It had it had the top the top spot uh, that that had the uh, had the most passers by and the most eyes on it. And um, they sent us a couple, so I actually took the other one home. Um, it was the first movie poster I ever owned, uh, the Phantom Menace teaser poster. And um, uh, since then, actually collecting movie posters has become uh, probably my biggest focus, apart from collecting the vintage Star Wars toys. So I've become a big Star Wars movie poster collector. And um, I, I guess that began with the Phantom Menace. So uh, that day that I pinched that poster from the cinema store cupboard, uh, that was the day that my poster collecting uh, began. Um, you got the movie in May in the US. We actually didn't get the movie till June. Um, you know, seven months after that teaser, we'd had all that time to, to look at those images that came in the teaser. And actually the teaser contained an awful lot. You know, teasers today are far more uh, stingy with rationing out what they let you see. But um, there was so much contained in the teaser that, um, you know, the, the excitement levels of what this movie contained, you know, it looked like it was going to be a three or four hour movie. There was so much in that packed into that teaser. Um, it, it really was fantastic. And um, I, I remember uh, watching it for the first time. Uh, we didn't do a midnight show at the cinema I worked at, but we did have, do a morning show. And um, I sat down in that morning show uh, by myself. This was sort of a working day when I kind of bunked off work, I guess, for a couple of hours that morning to, to watch it. And um, I, I came out thrilled. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I remember uh, someone asking me what I thought. And I sort of said, well, I don't think it's as good as Star Wars or The Empire Strikes Back, but I think it's as good as Return of the Jedi. That was kind of how I felt on the day, the very first day that I saw it. And um, uh, I went and saw it a couple of other times as well. Um, I don't think it's as good as Return of the Jedi anymore. I put it a little bit below that, but um, I do still hold it in fairly high regard. Um, something that I'm also that I wanted to mention is is the soundtrack. I really think um, it's got a wonderful soundtrack. Um, the Jewel of the Fates is such a bombastic piece. It's got the sort of the echoes of Ride of the Valkyries or Carmina Burana. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's so bombastic that the rest of the soundtrack can be overlooked. So um, I wanted to highlight one of the quieter and softer pieces, um, which is Anakin's theme. So I'm going to play the opening of it now. Just take a little listen to Anakin's theme. I just think that's really nice. You can hear the uh, the main refrain there on the pipes, um, but the piece builds up and it builds up into the full symphony. And um, Williams has actually weaved the Imperial March into that. So on the surface, it seems like a very simple, pastoral, innocent piece of music, but actually it, it's incredibly sophisticated. Um, so Jewel of the Fates may be sort of the chart hit single uh, from the album, if you like, but really the whole of the soundtrack is, is sublime. Um, so when I hear sort of, Comments like, ah, oh, the Phantom Menace sucks or the red letter media type trolling of the film. Um, I despair because you, you can't be that dismissive, that reductive to a movie that has elements in it which are so beautiful and have such artistic merit. And um, John Williams' score certainly qualifies. 
uh, I should say actually along with many other parts of the production, including sets, um, including costume design. I mean, Amidala's outfits, um, Darth Maul's makeup job. I mean, it was instantly iconic in the way that the uh, Star Wars original trilogy also managed to create these instantly iconic looks. And uh, I-, I think there's an awful lot of value um, in The Phantom Menace. There are, of course, some things that are a bit clunky and things that don't work quite so well. But um, you, you can't just dismiss the whole film out of hand when there are such good elements in it. When I look back in retrospect and I look at it as sort of one of the prequel trilogy, um, the best compliment that I can give The Phantom Menace is that it felt like a Star Wars movie. Um, it has that sort of daring do sense of adventure uh, that you get in the Saturday morning serials, you know, Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon. And although, you know, there was a lot of CG in it, it still felt tangible. Um, it felt sort of real, you know, that window through into another world um, in a way that I think perhaps the other two prequels didn't. Um, with Attack of the Clones, George retreated into a green screen rather. And in fact, uh, Revenge of the Sith, I believe, is the only Star Wars film not to have any location shooting in it whatsoever. Um, I think The Phantom Menace was a very personal film for George Lucas. Um, in particular, the pod race was something I think that really appealed to his sort of sense of, of excitement in motor racing uh, that he put into that film. So um, I think he also took it very personally when... Um, the, uh, the, the negative comments came out about the film. I look at it now um, and it's got a certain charm. I can't believe it's 20 years ago. As you might have gathered from my previous comments, I'm not a big fan of Attack of the Clones or Avenger of the Sith. I think they're definitely far weaker films than The Phantom Menace. Um, so when I look back at it now and I've got Rogue One as well to think about, I've got Solo. It seems to me that Phantom Menace is almost like a standalone movie in my mind. I can sort of take that. I can pick that one out and say, you know, that's a film that I will go back and I will rewatch. And I don't really rewatch the other two. Um, so that's how I feel about The Phantom Menace. Um, I, I, I'm rather kinder to it than, than a lot of people I know. But um, I hope you enjoyed this little, respect, little retrospective. And um, I look forward to listening to other people's opinions as well. Thanks, Steve. Bye. All right, heading back to the States, here's Anthony Spinnecke. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Anthony Spinnecke, and this is uh, my story, uh, my recollection of the, uh, the release of The Phantom Menace in the spring of 1999 and the events in my life that uh, led up to it. I wanted to first thank uh, Stephen Danley uh, for uh, the Star Wars at the Movie podcast and his social media feed. It is a great gift to the community and the hobby, and it is uh, very enjoyable, informative, and uh, most of all, nostalgic. Thank you, uh, Steve. So uh, in the late spring of 1999, I was living with my four uh, med school roommates in a house in Somerset, New Jersey, not very far from where I grew up. Um, incidentally, we actually live within walking distance of a small strip mall that had once housed the uh, locally famous Rutgers Plaza Cinemas, where I had actually seen movies such as The Return of the Jedi, Rocky IV, and even Teen Wolf as a child. Um, that theater had unfortunately been long gone by then and replaced by a stop and shop, uh, but that's neither here nor there, and thought I could add that for the nostalgia of the story. Um, so I live with 
four other guys, the five of us roommates. Uh, we were a mixed bag of uh, Star Wars fans. Um, I, at the time, considered myself a diehard, and I was an on-again, off-again collector who, like many, had fallen in love with uh, Vintage as a child. And then I dabbled in Power of the Force 2 during the 90s. And I actually even went to Midnight Madness that year at Toys R Us for the Episode 1 uh, figure releases. Uh, amongst my other roommates, uh, there were two other lifelong fans. There was uh, one casual enthusiast, and there was one who had actually never seen a Star Wars film. I remember when the release date of Episode 1 uh, was approaching, and he admitted to us that he had never seen Star Wars. Uh, we all looked at him like uh, he was well, like he had three heads. And we said to him, how is it possible that you've never seen a Star Wars movie? So um, up till then, our group had done everything together, and there was no way we are going to let our one lost brother uh, go see Episode 1 without uh, being well-versed in the Star Wars saga. So uh, we went on to have not one, but multiple Star Wars marathon days where we watched the original trilogy, uh, all three episodes in a row. And after uh, the first run, he was instantly hooked. And after some repetition, he was indoctrinated into the club. Okay, so on to the movie. Uh, of course, we wanted to get into the first screening and get decent seats. And this posed an issue that we uh, don't really deal with in today's time, right? Uh, as you all know, this was an age before Fandango and online ticket sales. There was no such thing as seat selection available online. And so this meant we actually had to camp out overnight twice. The first time to buy our tickets and then again on opening night so that we can get decent seats. Um, and I, got, I have to admit, this was actually one of the most fun and meaningful parts of this whole story. Uh, the theater that we were planning to see the movie at uh, was called the uh, Regal Cinemas in New Brunswick, New Jersey. It was a fairly uh, new theater, uh, but had a lot of Star Wars meaning to me personally. Um, first, uh, it was the site of the old Route 1 Fleet Market that was very famous amongst uh, local New Jersey folk. And uh, many of you may remember it, uh, that it made a cameo in the film Mallrats. Um, the market had uh, been long gone by then, but having grown up mere miles from it, I remember going as a kid looking for used Star Wars figures and even Transformer toys. And later, when I became too cool for toys, I used to go there looking for uh, used cassette tapes. Um, but this was also the theater where I went to see the release of the special edition Star Wars films just uh, years earlier. So the five of us started waiting online the evening, the day before ticket sales. And I have to say this was uh, the first time I was really exposed to real Star Wars fanatics. I thought it was, uh, I, I mean, I, I thought I was pretty serious, but this was the first time I saw things like cosplayers, lightsaber battle reenactments. There were trivia competitions and even toy vendors. And I have to say I felt very much at home. Uh, we waited in line that night for over 12 hours. We actually cycled two of us guys at a time to my buddy's Honda Accord uh, to take power naps uh, while the others waited in line. Uh, needless to say, not only did we get our tickets, but we had our Star Wars fire uh, reignited, uh, something that uh, most of us hadn't felt in decades. And I have to say, we we're all in on it. So as the days to opening night approached, I remember the amazing amount of merchandising uh, that we came across. We happened to be studying for uh, our medical boards, and I distinctly remember drinking an unhealthy amount of Diet Mountain Dew, which uh, had a promotion for The Phantom Menace. I remember some cans uh, definitely having Darth Maul on them. Uh, others maybe had Anakin or a Power Droid. But I remember that I didn't want to throw them out and instead displayed them in my room, which I guess was a foreshadowing of things to come uh, as a modern-day collector. 
Uh, so opening night finally arrived, uh, and this is another uh, contrast to today's experience as moviegoers. Uh, nowadays, uh, films open quote-unquote on a Friday, but instead uh, premiere on that Thursday night, sometimes as early as uh, 5 or 6 local time. So back then, Friday really meant Friday, and it meant when it turned Friday at midnight. So this meant that we had to camp out yet again. And I believe we got in line earlier on Thursday morning and again cycled out of line two at a time for food and bathroom breaks. Um, again, there were more cosplayers and lightsaber battles. It was great. And at midnight, we got in and we got great seats. So we're in the theater. I remember lightsabers in the theater. I remember cheering. But I'll never forget seeing the Lucasfilm logo and then the silence and then the blast of the main title theme. It was simply awesome. Regarding the, the, the movie itself, uh, while I was fascinated by the new characters, the best part was the reunion with old familiar friends like R2 and the cheers that it drew from the crowd. And not to mention being reunited with one of my all-time favorites, a recasted Ben Kenobi. In all, I remember loving the whole episode one experience, all the build-up, all the marketing. I was bitten again by the collecting bug. The episode one figures definitely helped bridge a gap to where I am now, and I still have a couple legal boxes filled with that carded run. Heck, my parents even got me, their 23-year-old son, Star Wars figures for Christmas that year. It was the first time they did it in over a decade, and I could tell it was even more of a treat for them than it was for me as they tried to recreate the magic that had occurred in their homes in the early 80s. With regards to the movie itself, despite the excitement of seeing new Star Wars, I did feel on the fence at first, and later would, like many, adopt the opinion that it and the prequels to follow were inferior to the original trilogy. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a prequel hater, and if I had to rank the 10 Star Wars movies released so far, I'd have to say that The Phantom Menace would be, unfortunately, near the bottom of the 10, but still would be more loved by me than almost any other non-Star Wars movie out there. Um, I love watching it now. My kids love it. It's an important part of the Star Wars saga. And at the time, it was the true rebirth of Star Wars in our lives. Today, Star Wars is now back and bigger than ever. I'm so excited that it's happening while my two sons at ages three and five are the perfect age for it. And without The Phantom Menace and the prequels that followed, we may not have gotten to where we are today. That spring of 1999 will always hold a dear spot in my heart as a Star Wars fan. So uh, thanks for listening to my story, and thanks again to Stephen Danley for Star Wars at the Movie. I hope you enjoyed my uh, recollection of The Phantom Menace and my experience in uh, 1999. Take care. How many floppy disks would you think it'd take to store a trailer video file in 1998? Well, Richard Hutchinson from the UK is here with the answer. Hey Steve, it's Richard Hutchinson here from the Vintage Rebellion podcast and Fantatracks. So, coming on to chat to you about the Phantom Menace trailer. So, back in 1998, I was on a 33.6k modem. And all I can say is, what when that trailer appeared, I clicked the button to download and I waited. And waited. And waited as it crawled very slowly to 1% and then 2%. And after what seemed like half an ice age, I actually had to give up. I just, I just couldn't get it to download at all. So I headed off to university. And where I went to university, we had some Unix machines. And I downloaded them. 
And I wasn't sure, I still can't remember now why I didn't watch it at university. It was probably a mix of had the problems with the software or perhaps I didn't have uh, speakers or headphones or something. But I definitely didn't watch it at university and I had to bring it home to watch on my PC. But it was bigger than 1.44 megabytes, which was the size of the floppy disk limits back then. So I had to download another program, which was called AxSplitter. And I remember splitting the file into, you know, I think it was about four floppy disks for memory. And then I had to bring the floppy disks home. And then I had to use AxSplitter to reassemble them again. Uh, this took forever and a day, and it really did take a long time to get it working. And I remember when it first loaded up, the screen was probably two inch square, absolutely dreadful quality, uh, very very grainy. But as soon as that kicked in, and the you know the the gungans coming through the the swamp, it was it just absolutely had me hooked. And I watched that several times. As soon as I finished watching it, I jumped onto JediNet, which was my go-to forum back then, uh, reading all the, the positive reviews and everybody who had seen that trailer was raving about it, and I just couldn't wait to go and see it at the movie. And I remember being really disappointed with the second trailer, the way they released that, because from memory, I think it was an Apple QuickTime-only release, and not only did I have the same problem again of downloading the trailer, although I'm pretty sure I may have been up to the mighty 56k modems by that point, uh, but I also had to download the Apple QuickTime program, and that was frequently crashing, and it was just a nightmare getting it working. So I was very disappointed that it took so long to be released in the UK. A lot of my friends on JediNet had had seen it, and you know, very very mixed reactions, and I, I'd say more people absolutely hated it than actually enjoyed it. And I was really disappointed and disheartened reading the reviews. Um, some relations of mine had a copy on an old VHS, a very, very badly bootleg. And I walked into their TV room and they were watching it. And I just turned around and come straight out. I thought, not, not, not having any of that. So I didn't go to the midnight screening of The Phantom Menace. I would have gone to probably the weekend screening, which would have been approximately 7 o'clock. And I took my then-girlfriend at the time to go and see The Phantom Menace. And I remember after the opening crawl, uh, she leaned over and she said, um, I don't understand any of that. I haven't got a clue what's happening. But I was just hooked. And I came out of that movie theatre thinking, wow, that movie was absolutely tremendous. Yes, there's some scenes in it where you can look on it back now and you think, oh, you know, was that really necessary? But I honestly didn't understand all the Jar Jar hate. I didn't understand all the, the Anakin hate. I absolutely loved the movie. Um, it's an experience that you had to be there to enjoy it. I mean, kids today don't understand what it's like. The, fan, the Force Awakens trailer, yeah, it was great, but as soon as it was released, everybody's watching it streamed in high quality. Go back and watch the Phantom Menace trailer on a 33.6K modem, and that's what true fandom is. Anyway, really enjoying listening to the show, Steve. Now, here's another way that the new Star Wars will affect money matters across America. The Wall Street Journal reports that some businesses are shutting down on May 19th. That's the movie's opening day, so that their employees can go see it. Whether sanctioned by the boss or not, an estimated 2.2 million full-time employees missed work to see The Phantom Menace when it opened, resulting in about $293 million of lost productivity. That is just insane. Those that coincidentally came down with Wookiee fever or Gungan throat were uh, taking an awful risk, such as Dave Brott from Cincinnati, Ohio. Wow, Phantom Menace, it's been 20 years. Uh, this is Dave Brott, I'm Cincinnati area Star Wars fan. 
Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my memories of the trailer, first of all. Uh, I do remember uh, going out to see it. I bought a ticket uh, to with my good friend Todd Purcell to see uh, Meet Joe Black. Uh, the two of us went to a 12 o'clock noon showing of Meet Joe Black um, on, I think it was a weekday. I know that uh, I was kind of in between jobs at the time, so I wasn't due anywhere. Um, I was right after college for me, 1998. And uh, there were other people there that had clearly gone to their lunch break to see this movie. And uh, we all went to see Meet Joe Black, and we went in there, and the theater was mostly empty, which is surprising now when I think about it. Um, I don't know how we found out that the trailer was coming out. Uh, the Internet certainly was around, but it wasn't giant, uh, giant uh, presence that it is now. I might have even read about it in Star Wars Insider, uh, but a little research just now on the internet said it was only in 75 theaters in the country. I remember driving out to Springdale uh, Theater here in Cincinnati, Ohio, to see Meet Joe Black at 12 noon on uh, that particular day. Uh, went in there. It was mostly empty, as I said. Uh, the trailer uh, blasted into the theater, and it just blew my mind. I could not believe how good it was. The classic music uh, taken from the part of the... Uh, Episode four, where Obi Wan Kenobi uh, finds Luke, and laying that over, uh, laying that over new footage of swamps and um, you know ships flying uh, over a very ornate-looking city. Uh, very amazing trailer. Loved that trailer. I still feel that is maybe the best trailer of all time in terms of uh, building up hype um, and uh, just uh, magic. I love the magic of that trailer. to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the force. You believe it's this boy? He can see things before they happen. He can help you. The force is unusually strong with him. He was meant to help you. Anakin! Tell him to take off! Will I ever see you again? What does your heart tell you? Are you sure about this? Trusting our fate to a boy we hardly know? Anakin Skywalker, meet Obi-Wan Kenobi. I sense much fear in you. The boy is dangerous. They all sense it. Why can't you? Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And as soon as it ended, uh, Todd and I stood up, we walked out, and we went to the 1215 showing of Meet Joe Black. And about six other people did, too. So the 12 o'clock showing of Meet Joe Black had only <laughs> a couple people left in it. And we went to the 1215, saw the trailer again, and then everyone left. We all went into the hallway, and all these people that I'd never met before, we just talked about how great the trailer was. Uh, I was blown away by it. Uh, I had to see it a, a lot more times than that to really digest it. Um, but uh, that particular day, I only got to see it twice. Uh, I remember I was leaving town. I had to drive, I think, up to Michigan from there. Or no, that's not right. I was driving to Wisconsin. Um, but uh, 
I, uh, yeah, I thought about the trailer the whole way on this long drive. And when I got there, there was nowhere to watch it on the internet that I was aware of. So I just had to wait until I saw it again in a theater. Um, I did eventually see it on the internet some, but, uh, like I said, I didn't really, I did not own a computer at that time. So, which is so weird to think about now. Uh, so I just had to wait to see it again. Uh, but I remember my impressions of it were positive. I remember being confused by Darth Maul. He makes a few uh, appearances in the trailer, but I thought at the time those were several different characters. And I remember uh, talking with friends about it. I said, no, no, there are, there are several people with red lightsabers, not just one. And I, I envisioned it was some gang of Sith-type people that were all being overseen by somebody. Um, but, uh, of course, I was wrong. That was one character. And um, I just remember feeling that way at the time, like we were going to see some kind of army of Sith versus some kind of army of Jedi. But uh, truly amazing trailer, um, and uh, it still to this day is my favorite. Uh, I'm talking now about seeing the actual movie The Phantom Menace in 1999. Um, I was uh, living and working in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. Uh, it was right after college for me. I moved there with my good friend Christopher Watson from Grinnell College, and uh, the two of us got an apartment. He was in grad school. I was just working temp jobs. And uh, that's kind of part of a funny part of this story. Uh, when we got our tickets, I remember getting uh, tickets for the midnight show. And um, they were, uh, I don't think they were hard to get. I don't, remember, I don't remember how we got them, but I had them ahead of time. I think we just drove out there and bought them. Um, and then uh, that day, uh, we went and waited in line. Um, I had a very early uh, job that week uh, for a temp company. So I just read their policy and it said, if you call in sick the day of, Yada yada, you're good to go. So I had that in my head and went down to the uh, theater. It's for a midnight show. Probably got there, I don't know, seven, eight o'clock at night. Now I would go a lot earlier, but the line was already like a hundred people long. But like I said, we already had our ticket, so we were good to go. And I remember Christopher and I walking up to the front of the line and finding uh, finding out who was first in line. And Christopher wanted to get his picture taken with that person, so we did. I would love to find that picture now. I don't know where it is. Um, but I do remember a lot of people had the Darth Maul lightsaber there, and a lot of people had the Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan lightsaber toys, and they were playing and, you know, cosplaying to some extent. We didn't, I don't remember knowing that word cosplaying back then, but um, there were people there dressed up. Uh, Darth Maul was a popular character to dress as. And uh, we got into the uh, theater, and it just went nuts. I'm sure everyone listening had a similar experience if they saw it in the theater. Uh, when that crawl came up, uh, episode one, everyone cheered. The Phantom Menace, everyone cheered. And then for when the ships came in, everyone quieted down. And I remember being so on the edge of my seat about what was going to happen. And when Newt Gunray says, uh, send a droid in there, I just remember kind of laughing to myself and thinking, what a lot of hype for now the droid has to lead whatever this is. And that uh, the silver uh, protocol unit, um, TC-14, walks in and has to lead the meeting. And after that, I just lost myself in the movie. But before that, I was uh, absolutely on pins and needles about what was going to happen, what is going to happen at the beginning of this movie. Um, I don't remember disliking the scrawl text at the time, but uh, subsequently, that's not my favorite part of the movie. Uh, we all left the movie, and I remember being happy, but also it just didn't feel quite like Star Wars to me at the time. And we all went out to like a Denny's or something. Uh, there were only four of us. And uh, talked about the movie, and I remember kind of thinking to myself, uh, is that a good movie? Um, <laughs> and uh, then I went home, and I called in sick, and, uh, the, and I slept in, Wookiee fe fever. A lot of people had Wookiee fever that year. And uh, later that afternoon, they called me back, and they said I was fired. So uh, I got fired for going to see The Phantom Menace. Um, I guess they don't tolerate people calling in sick when you're just starting out at a new job. So 
that's the end of that story. And uh, it was a lot of fun, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I'm now thinking about my uh, reaction to the movie as it went on. I wish I could remember the name of the theater where I saw the movie in um, Madison, Wisconsin, that first night at midnight. Uh, but I can't for the life of me. It may have been a Lowe's. It was definitely a big box theater, multiplex, uh, with a lot of screens. Um, anyway, I remember uh, not being so sure I loved the movie at first. Uh, I subsequently loved this movie. But at the very beginning of all of it... Um, I was, like a lot of fans, a little taken aback, and I had to decide whether I liked the movie or not. Uh, so I went to see it nine more times in theaters. <laughs> I concluded by the end that I did, in fact, like it a lot, but it was very different than the classic trilogy, and that was just something I would have to live with. Um, so I was um, absolutely part of the part of fandom that, on one hand, disliked the movie. I never hated it as much as several other uh, people that I knew. Uh, but now that's almost gone entirely. When I look back 20 years later, I just I love thinking of that time. It's um, the classic trilogy. I was a kid um, when that was going on, and I only really remember Jedi well. The other two, I'm too young. I was born in 1976. But uh, the Phantom Menace, I can look back and I can remember every single part of what was happening. I still have things. Uh, I'm a collector as well, and I still have things in my collection now that I bought in 1998. And it's fun to get that stuff out and relive the past. Uh, none of it was in my basement. Uh, my stepmom didn't give it away to uh, uh, charities, which is what happened to uh, most of my Star Wars toys growing up uh, that belonged to my brother and sister and I. Uh, but I still have all the stuff from Phantom Menace, and I still uh, do enjoy reliving it. Um, and it's a great memory for me. I really, really dig uh, the uh, Phantom Menace and uh, everything associated with it in that year of 1999. Up next, here's Tyler Harper from Canada, who, like many, was determined to see this movie multiple times at the theater, no matter what it took to persevere. My name is Tyler, and I'm from Alberta, Canada. I uh, was born in 1984, so all the original trilogy had been in and out of the theaters by the time I was even born. Um, when I found out or discovered that uh, there were new movies coming out for Star Wars, um, I was very, very excited, and I wanted to do all the traditional things that... Uh, I had heard had been done um, watching multiple times in the theater, um, standing out in line. I wanted to do all these things to really feel that um, Star Wars experience. And uh, when Phantom Menace came around, I honestly can't remember where I saw the uh, the trailer first, but I got some friends. Nobody in my uh, in my immediate class was a Star Wars fan, so there are a couple guys who are older than I. Um, we skipped the last couple couple periods of school. And we went in, there was an earlier showing at our local theater in a small town in Alberta. And uh, this, of course, wasn't a big city, so there wasn't a huge line. But there were two guys at the front of the line with a Yoda mask and a Darth Vader mask. And uh, we got in, we saw the guys at the front, we got in line. Um, of course, you couldn't book ahead or anything like that. But uh, we got in, we sat near the back. Uh, it was probably one of my first experiences with um, just being with, with somebody else other than my family in the theater. And we ended up um, watching the show, and my family always uh, stayed for the the credits at the end. And uh, I remember with this group, we, they just ran right out as soon as um, the directed by George Lucas came up, and the and the fanfare began. 
it was it was odd for me and almost like we couldn't comprehend what had just happened. Um, but I remember in the truck ride home, we were so excited. We it was cool. Um, we were excited that that was just number one. Um, it was, it was odd cause it was something so new. Um, it was so different to see a different part of star Wars an earlier thing of star Wars, but we were excited still. I, in, in my heart, I still, Phantom Menace is my favorite of the prequels. Um, it has its shortcomings. It has some really great moments. And yes, was I aware of some wood in acting? The point, the point is conceded. Will you defer your motion to allow a commission to explore the validity of your accusations? Probably this was the first time I realized them. Like, they're, they're not acting very well. But uh, that's part of the charm that's in it. I did end up seeing the film five times in the theater, because that was my goal. Uh, I wanted to be one of those Star Wars geeks that had had the story. And um, I remember by the end, it was almost just the, because, uh, I mean, Natalie Portman's beautiful. So it was like the, the beauty of Natalie Portman was holding me through the movie <laughs> by the end. Um, it uh, it was It's one that I still enjoy watching, but there's, it's hard to explain. I love the movie, but you kind of go, it's not that great, but we know. But yeah, my mom ended up buying, I swear, like, every toy that every restaurant had for Phantom Menace. And uh, we just had tons of stuff, tons of toys. We, my mom was a kid again, and we had, we were spoiled. I really enjoyed it. We got the widescreen uh, VHS when it was released, and I have very fond memories of The Phantom Menace. The other prequels I only saw once in the theater each, uh, and Phantom Menace just has a charm to it still. The newness, the something so different, and uh, you know Darth Maul. So cool, so mysterious, and uh, I mean, I love Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor is my favorite thing of the prequels. Um, Liam Neeson, like, there's just so many great things in there. And the pod race is awesome. It's very exciting, and the sounds are so cool. The visuals are cool. Um, you get past. <laughs> it's, it's, it's as if it is as if you just skip over the bad acting and get to the action sequences. And um, yeah, that's where that's where the charm of the Phantom Menace lies. But. Glad I could share the memories with you. Cannot believe it's been 20 years. I feel like an old man now. In terms of staunch prequel supporters, I'm not sure I've ever seen one argue so passionately in their favor as my good friend and Kivecast co-host Sky Payne. Uh, he's also always reliantly recounted his memories of Boston with liveliness and an entertaining tangent or three, so I was glad to have him partake. Episode one. Episode one. This is this is Sky Payne talking about episode one for Stephen B. Danley's uh, podcast. You know, uh, when I saw episode one, I was not excited at all. I was a big Star Wars fan, you know, uh, mostly mostly because of uh, VHS releases in the early 90s, which were uh, the letterbox versions. Although I uh, memorably worked at a Blockbuster video and, and someone asked for the Butterbox version. <laughs> hey, y'all got the Butterbox version of Star Wars? Anyway, so that was what I liked about, about Star Wars. But then I remember in 97 when the special editions came out and I went to go see them. I used to always go see the movies uh, at the Sherry 123 in Boston. 
Uh, it's kind of, it's no longer there. It's kind of close to, uh, like, where Berkeley School of Music is. It's right next to a bar called Bukowski's. And, uh, yeah, that, that's where I saw uh, Batman in, like, 1989. And I waited, like, a couple weeks to see it because I assumed that every, every showing was, was sold out. Um, so I went there and I saw like Batman I'm talking about I'll, I'll, I'll get to episode one Steve but let me tell you a funny Batman story there's these like drunk and high guys behind us at this like three o'clock showing on a Sunday and they were just sitting behind going lemonade lemonade I got lemonade and uh, I still think that's funny anyway so I'd always go to the Sherry to see my Star Wars movies no longer exists uh, an urban cinema uh, looking back at it now, it's kind of a dump, but it felt special because it was in Boston. You know, it was before they built this megaplex by Fenway. It was before they built the megaplex in the area that used to be called the Combat Zone, that is now just an extension of the financial district. Most of Boston sucks now. Anyways, back before Boston sucked, there was the Sherry One Two Three, and that was this awesome theater. And uh, I'll get I'll get to Phantom Menace. That was also the theater where my mom let me skip school to go see Malcolm X because Spike Lee told me to. So uh, so we're talking about movie theaters. So let me get to episode one. So before I get to episode one, I'll talk about the the special editions. You know, I saw the special editions in '97 at the Sherry, and I'm like, this is terrible. I don't I don't like this at all. This is not what I want. I don't know what George Lucas is doing, but I don't think I like it. So if we fast forward two years to. Uh, to episode one, then I just, I wasn't looking forward to it. I, I don't remember seeing the trailer. I remember seeing the poster and thinking, yeah, that's kind of cool. And then I studied in France. I was in France for the, the spring semester of, uh, of 99. So I, I missed two things. One, I completely missed whatever the matrix was. I came home and I'm like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Some dumb movie with Bill and Ted in it. And then I missed all of the episode one hype. Like, all of the episode one hype. So, when Star Wars came out, and episode one came out, I wasn't sitting in line waiting to see it. I was actually, and this is going to sound pretentious, I was actually at the Cannes Film Festival. See, I went to the Cannes Film Festival. I actually took a class just so I could go to the Cannes Film Festival. And I went to the Cannes Film Festival in 1999, and I was there for 10 days, and I saw 40 movies in 10 days. I didn't spend a single second on the beach. I didn't go to a party. This, like, girl, like, chatted me up, and it was pretty clear that she was into, like, maybe having some kind of affair, and I just left her in line and was like, catch you later, I'm going off to the next movie, and that's what I did. Just movie after movie after movie after movie, and then I came home to America, and it was, like, in the middle of May. It was, like, I don't know, probably a week after episode one came out, and all my friends were like, the new Star Wars is out, and I'm like, Cool! Oh, all the showings just sold out until 10 o'clock. And it was the day after I got back from France. And it was, I was completely jet lagged. And we saw like the 11 o'clock showing. And I straight up, like, first of all, I was like, what is this Jar Jar character? This is some racist stuff. And mind you, I, I now love Jar Jar. It's my favorite thing about the movie. I could argue for a good three hours why Jar Jar is one of the best Star Wars characters ever created. But at the time, I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. I do not like this. And then the pod racing scene came on. And so there I am at the Sherry Theater and I'm feeling all, you know, urban and cool. And I am snoring in my seat. I straight up fell asleep during most of the pod race. I remember kind of waking up and, and sort of liking the end and not really getting it. 
the good news for me and the good news for my fandom was I went back to see it again later the next week and I still didn't like Jar Jar but I liked it a little bit more and I saw it a couple more times and all of a sudden I started to realize that there was something kind of special happening there that Lucas had something going on and I actually Steve if, if you don't mind I'd like to talk about yet another movie Uh, And that's another movie that came out that summer that I think is actually the best comparison to episode one. That's Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick. So if you don't know, Stanley Kubrick released uh, Full Metal Jacket in like 1986, and then he went radio silent. He didn't make another movie until Eyes Wide Shut. And like that came out the same summer as episode one. So this sort of film snobby art school dude who goes to Cannes Film Festival was more excited to see Eyes Wide Shut as a Kubrick fan than I was to see episode one. But I had basically the same reaction. Like I watched Eyes Wide Shut and I'm like, what is this? This isn't Kubrick. I don't like this. Why is Tom Cruise in this? Like Tom Cruise is Jar Jar, you know? And then I'm like, I eventually ended up watching that movie four or five more times and now you know it's a great movie and it fits in there with uh with uh with the rest of Kubrick's oeuvre oeuvre the rest of his ovaries so I I think it's it's worth talking about like the expectations and how they were built in and how much it was destined it was our destiny to be disappointed as 20 year olds in that movie there's no way we weren't going to be and for those of us who were strong enough, brave enough, and smart enough, we, we sat through it and we decided to figure out what makes it great. Is it possible that the same artist that made Star Wars made The Phantom Menace? And of course, the, the answer is yes. And it's a great, excellent movie, better than all the Marvel movies put together. And if you want to disagree with me, come see me at the archive party. I'll, I'll talk you out of your shoes on that one. So that's my best memory about episode one coming out. Um, one of my best friends was this guy named Mark and he had a friend named Joe who I never really liked and we always competed with each other and I remember I started to really like him when I realized he also liked episode one even though the rest of my friends had bailed out and we kind of bonded over that and one time we were like in the woods in New Hampshire we were camping together and we all agreed to go into the closest town and see episode one again and that was the most fun I ever had and on the way out I bought a, uh, a Darth Maul towel that I still have to this day So that's my episode one memory, Steve. Your podcast is awesome. And uh, if you don't know, uh, uh, I don't know how I'm going to end that sentence. All right. Until next time, whatever Steve says goes. The galaxy's most legendary heroes, fearsome villains, and coolest vehicles. Now available to take home and play with at Pizza Hut, KFC, and Taco Bell. Right now, at participating Taco Bell locations, you can get one of these cool Star Wars Episode One collectible toys. One in every Taco Bell kids meal you buy. This next story comes from likely the biggest Episode One enthusiast around. Manoa Crane, appropriately known as the Episode One guy on social media, evokes the movie's insane tie-in craze and speaks to why a $2.5 billion marketing deal with Pepsi, among others, became so meaningful for him at 10 years old. Hey, Steve, it's Manoa Crane from Fresno, California. Um, I'm kind of known in some circles as the, the Episode One guy. I thought I'd send you over some, some, uh, some of my, I guess, my 
my uh, memories of episode one. Uh, episode one, obviously, you know, that's it's my main focus and what I collect. I collect a little bit of everything. I love uh, Star Wars. I'm, I'm completely obsessed with Star Wars. It's more of a lifestyle, for, you know, to to a lot of us that who collect. It kind of becomes a lifestyle. Um, but I kind of am where I am in life because of episode one. Um, during like the 1997 to 2000, you know, era of when episode one ruled the world, so to speak. Um, my parents were going through a divorce and my, me and my dad were best friends and, um, my mom got full custody. Me and my sisters kind of kicked my dad out of my, out of my life. And, um, it sucked, you know, it was a hard time. It was a dark time for me, but, um, inevitably it kind of is what created my obsession with episode one because, um, my whole life I thought it was because I need, like Star Wars was something that I escaped to and episode one was the ultimate escape. I mean, just take the story plot out of it. Um, it was bigger than it was bigger than life. It was like that, you know. It was, it was larger than life. It was literally everywhere. It was ruling the world. Episode one was ruling the world. It was a a necessary distraction I needed in my life during that time. It was everywhere. It was over all over TV, like billboards. It was on people's bags that they were walking out of stores with. It was fast food. It was, you know, Pepsi. It was literally everywhere. It, it was amazing. And then the older I got. Um, I just thought, you know, that was a movie that kind of kicked me into, I saw the, the special edition obviously in the nineties. Um, and that's what, that was my first memories of star Wars were the special editions. Um, but I didn't like, I wouldn't say it's what spun me into obsession with star Wars and episode one was that, um, it wasn't, I think until years later, kind of, I don't know, about five or six years ago. Um, I was watching a documentary, uh, made by Chris Mott. It's called the force within us. I believe it was. And uh, he was talking about how how those of us that are so hardcore uh, hardcore obsessed with with Star Wars it all spawns somewhere like we all think of it as if it's a, like a loved one or best friend or you know like an uncle or whatever we think of it as part of us. Um, he was saying that it that all happens because something bad happened to us when we were younger or or you know his story was his head father had committed suicide and him and his father had, you know, star Wars was their thing. So he just bonded to that. It became, you know, part of his life, the way his father was. And for me, I started to think about that. What was it that, that made me bond with episode one? And it was that it was the time, the darkest time of my life when I lost inevitably my best friend and my father, um, through, you know, divorce and me not being able to pretty much see him. I didn't see him for six years. I think it was, but I, I attached myself to episode one, which was, as we all know, it's a story about, it's a story of two Jedi that go and take a boy away from his mother, you know, obviously you know, in a different way than I wanted someone to come take me away from my mom, whatever. But it was a story of two Jedi that come and take a boy away from his mom to become a Jedi of his own. So that's what I needed in my life, you know, at that time. So anyways, I, uh, that was the obsession I needed. I, I, uh, I, I remember going like seeing it across the street to go to the Taco Bell. And I remember being 10 years old, jumping in the dumpster at Taco Bell, which is kind of gross, I guess, but jumping in the, in the dumpster at Taco Bell to get the, the star Wars bags and the star Wars posters and the, all that stuff. Cause they actually threw, I remember at one point I had 76. I'm not sure if you guys remember the star Wars episode one posters that you put all four of them together and they create a big collage. I remember getting 76 of those posters, getting boxes of those. It was right after the movie had been a kind of the, the memorabilia, they kind of stopped doing it. 
Uh, I took him home and I thought I had the whole set and I had 76 of just the one with Qui-Gon Jinn on it. So, <laughs> yeah, but it was cool though. I mean, I had a, a stockpile of, of Star Wars, but that was, you know, it was probably a really cool part of my life. So anyways, my, uh, my, I guess my memories of the time frame weren't necessarily waiting in line because I was young and my mom, you know, obviously we're going through a serious time in our life. My mom never even took me to the seat in, in theater or whatever, but um, it was, it was a very um, impactful time in my life in general, just because of the pandemonium, you know, now I, I categorize my collection and I, I inevitably have a long-term uh, goal of, you know, having the world's largest episode one in general collection. Um, but the thing is, is the reason why that is, is because the some of the most impactful and important stuff to me isn't necessarily the expensive collectibles. It's the stuff that we saw, which is like, you know, the Pepsi cans or the fast food, um, memorabilia and just things that we saw that for me, at least I saw, you know, day in, day out. But for me, collecting episode one stuff is more about having everything that people had at that time, having everything that created the pandemonium that kind of distracted me during those moments. So, um, I, th- I think we can all agree as Star Wars fans, there's, you know, there was probably three pinnacle moments in our fandom where, um, Star Wars kind of went insane. And that was, you know, during the original release of Star Wars, which I wasn't alive for, I wish I was, but I wasn't. Um, and then during 1999, when episode one was released and then when force awakens came out, but I mean, during the time of episode one coming out, I, I personally think that was probably the most insane um, marketing and merchandising had ever gotten for Star Wars. And for me, I'll never, ever have all the stuff that was released. You know, I have a little bit of every single line probably that was released. But that time frame was so insane that there was licensing going everywhere you know literally everything you can think of was made for episode one and that pandemonium was just hands down the most insane i guess time frame to be a collector um and for me inevitably it was the it was the face of uh kind of my savior you know so anyways um enough of that it's kind of a a dark story but yeah i really appreciate all the love that you're uh you're showing for episode one i'm sure there's going to be some people that are going to leave you some some messages about uh their their being them being upset and stuff and the cool thing about episode 1 is you know some of us some of us um you know loved it and it was something that we had it had as a child and some of us hated it but when it comes down to it it's uh it's a uh, you know we all agree and disagree on certain things in Star Wars and I I appreciate everyone's opinion for what what they are you know so yeah I appreciate um you know, this little special thing you're doing for episode one. And yeah, man, may, may the force be with you. Cue up the good work. Enjoy the podcast. Love hearing it all the time, man. Have a good one. Bye. As has been established, waiting in line for absurd amounts of time to buy movie tickets was intrinsic to the Phantom Menace experience. And some fans took it to the next level in terms of organizing lineups across the country. One of which happened to be Eric Janicki, who helped lead the ticket camp out at the historic Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. A local filmmaker named Meredith Bragg even made a documentary about it, aptly titled Waiting for Jar Jar. Only three theaters right now are officially having marathon campouts. Um, the one in New York, the one in San Francisco, and the one in L.A. Here's Eric, who you'll hear talking throughout these clips with various people in line and also at a town hall type meeting. In a residential neighborhood, we just can't live on someone's front yard for that long. In the past, all the campouts and lines have gone up the street by their houses. 
<laughs> so were you all by yourself last night? Yeah, after 4 o'clock in the morning, I was all by myself. Oh, okay. So someone... I got some people with me, but they had to go to work. They got to go home and shower and go to work. So and I someone... four on, I was here by myself. And someone brought you, like, some coffee? And yeah, I woke up. I woke up, and there was a couple coffee and a Danish in there. So that was really cool. <laughs> Who brought you that? I had no idea. That's so cool. No Everybody's been really friendly. Yeah. If you have to ask why, then you'll never be able to understand the answer. Star Wars is why. It could either go really well or really bad. Now that you guys are here, it's like reality set in. And I think some of the neighbors are starting to like really freak out because it's kind of like, okay, they're really there that early and now it's scaring us. It's inevitable with an event to size that people are gonna be there. Now what we are attempting to do as a group is to for once organize the event instead of just coming in and taking over your community. We are just a group of fans that know for us to pull this off, we need your help and we need to um, more or less abide by your rules. You know, it's been anticipated for two decades and it's been building up and people have grown up with it. And they're going to come out and they're, you know, the 30-something-year-olds and the 40-something-year-olds will regress to the time they were 12 and they will be you know, fighting with their swords in the whole nine yards. So, you know, it's definitely happy enthusiasm. It's not going to encourage anyone to do anything irrational and violent, hopefully. But her biggest concern is you know, racket waking a family startles a family or scares the family. It's going really well. A long wait, but as you can see, uh, now there's like over 300 people online. It's been great. Everybody keeps bringing us all kinds of stuff. Uh, the local radio station today brought me a recliner to sit in. They brought me a TV to watch, a radio to listen to. I don't expect it to live up to the hype um, unless Jesus bursts through the screen and comes back. Uh, it'll probably be a letdown for most people. I just want it to be a good movie. People are starting to get upset about the phone sales and the internet sales, thinking they're going to beat the people who slept for two days, three days here. Can't really blame them, I guess. People are kind of upset they're not going to get tickets. There's been talk of violence, you know, mob violence. Due to technical difficulties, we can't pr process your request at this time. Please try again later. 12 tickets, 10 a.m., the first show. And here's Eric finally getting his tickets. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. This will be a day long remembered. Sweet, sweet success. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to the full doc, which actually won the Lucasfilm Fan Film Award for Best Documentary at Celebration 2. Alright, up next comes a story from Ed Newbon, a Brit that happened to get his first chance to see the movie quite far from home in North Africa. I saw Phantom Menace in quite special, maybe unusual circumstances, so I thought I would record my message uh, for you. Um, so let's start at the beginning, the, the trailer. I was working in a music store when the trailer first appeared for Phantom Menace. I'm guessing December 98, maybe January 99. Um, and we had one computer which was fixed up to dial up uh, internet. And we knew the trailer was out. So when the shop closed at six o'clock, we got on the computer and tried to watch the trailer. And it just took forever to download. It's probably because it was a popular site and dial up was very slow. And it just wouldn't happen. And the uh, manager kicked us off the computer because he had to do overtime work. But I think we managed to get to watch it the next day. And uh, I was intrigued. It looked very dark, 
um, the trailer, quite an adult film, and um, it was Star Wars, so I was excited. I didn't think I'd see this day again. So fast forward a few months later, April 1999, I found myself doing charity work in um, Namibia in southwestern Africa. And I did a community project, conservation project, environmental one. But I found myself, we were in very, very remote areas. So we were kind of like cut off from civilization. And by chance, and this isn't the main point of the story, but one of the guys, um, one of the expedition leaders, we were younger venturers, but one of the leaders had worked for George Lucas, um, Lucasfilm. And he knew George personally and he worked at, you know, the, the ranch. And so we would always talk about, you know, the Phantom Menace and it was coming and what would happen. And uh, it was very exciting um, knowing someone firsthand who, who'd seen a lot more of the movie. And I remember one time um, another guy joined our conversation and I was saying how, you know, is Liam Neeson's character going to appear as a force ghost in episodes two and three? Because he dies in episode one. And um, the, the guy who worked for Lucasfilm, he told me off. He said, Ed, why did you say that? That's such a spoiler. And because um, the other guy didn't know. And to be honest, I don't remember how I knew because it wasn't from the Internet back then. So I must have just read it quite a long time before the film came out. Now, this is the strange thing. Um, back then, movie release dates were really staggered. And I believe Phantom Menace only came out in the UK in July or maybe even August. The day after the our, um, our charity work finished, um, which was the 4th of June, it finished. And the 5th of June 1999 was my 25th birthday. And now I was staying in a, a youth hostel in Windhoek the capital of Namibia, and the Phantom Menace was out in Africa. I could go and see it. So I went to see it at the cinema, and it was quite a bizarre experience because I witnessed some quite extreme poverty, lived in the middle of a desert for weeks on end, not showered, and here I was in this theatre with air conditioning, popcorn. It could have been anywhere you know it could have been in London could have been in New York it was just like a regular cinema theater and I was on my own and I went in and I'm getting goosebumps now remembering it because the 20th Century Fox um, fanfare started and then the Star Wars music hit and I just sort of broke down I I, I was just I was crying I was ecstatic because I never thought I'd see another Star Wars film again in my life. And I was I was just over the moon that I got to see it on the 5th of June 1999 in, in Africa. Um, and it, it really, really hit me. Um, fast forward a few hours later, I was back to the hostel and some of my friends were saying, well, what was the movie like? And I couldn't really answer because... When I see a new Star Wars film, and this includes the, the recent movies, I can't critically analyse it at first because I'm just so overwhelmed and happy to be seeing Star Wars on the big screen and looking out for the different creatures and following the plot. But sometimes I think, actually, is this movie any good? And um, in the case of Phantom Menace, it really wasn't that good. I mean, looking back at it now, I, 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 I'm so disappointed um but you know that that's just just the way it, it was still a great 
experience, even though I don't think the movie was was that good. And then at, in July, I was back in the UK and by chance I was in some, it was a nice summer and it was in a park and two of my friends who were my big Star Wars friends when I was younger, the movie still wasn't out in the UK. And I was saying to them, you know, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. And I saw it in Africa and, you know, thinking I'd be in there first. And all of my friends in the UK had seen it on bootleg VHS video very poor recording but because they just couldn't wait and um i think it's good nowadays that movies more or less come out within a few days of each other in most territories at the same time to prevent like this you know pirating of it and and watching it so um that that was my experience uh it it really was an emotional one to see a star wars film to see it in africa um and to see it you know before it was out in the uk but as you know, maybe a bit of a downer. As, as I said, I, I don't think it's that that good. And um, I'm a lifelong Star Wars fan, and I, I think that's one of the things why I got so emotional in for many many years. Only my closest friends knew what Star Wars meant to me throughout the nineties. I didn't really go on about it much, and it just a, it was a big release of emotion seeing it again on the on the big screen and happy emotion too bringing back good childhood memories and and things thank you very much bye you are so blind you so do not understand you weren't there at the beginning you don't know how good it was how important this is it for you this jumped up firework display of a toy advert people like you make me sick what's wrong with you now I don't care if you've saved up only 50 peas, okay? Take your pocket money and get out! <laughs> now, a few of our stories from the UK have mentioned the lengthy delay between the US and British release dates, and the phantom presence of the film on VHS for those that just could wait no more. Here's one such fan with a first-hand account of succumbing to that bootleg video underworld. Hi Stephen, this is Declan McCafferty from Glasgow, Scotland. And this is my story about the first time I saw The Phantom Menace. In 1999, The Phantom Menace was due to be released in the UK a full eight weeks after it was in the States. And with all the hype and excitement and anticipation, there was no way that I was going to be able to last this eight-week period. Especially since... I was beginning to read reviews which were less than flattering and were quite controversial. So about five days after it opened in the States, I went into a local Glasgow VHS shop which largely dealt with knocked-off copies of very obscure sci-fi and martial arts and other genre films and spoke to the guy and asked him specifically did he know where I could get The Phantom Menace and he reached under the counter and produced a VHS tape of The Phantom Menace and exchanged it to me for £8 British sterling and I went home with The Phantom Menace and played it and the first half hour was pretty rubbishy quality, which improved for the remaining 90 minutes and was largely quite watchable. I was bemused by the film. 
I didn't understand what was going on in the film. And I was putting that down to the, the quality of the tape and my own anticipation. And thought that once I see this film on the big screen, everything will be okay in the end. Within about a day of me receiving it, I'd made a lot of phone calls and I arranged for a bit of an unofficial screening in my living room where we crammed about 12 people into it and we all watched it and we were all bemused by it. None of us liked it and we all blamed the quality of the copy. We all blamed our own anticipation of the film and thought that once we see it on a big screen with vibrant colours, it will all make sense and everything will be okay in the end. Well, eight weeks passed and I'd watched this tape several times, but eventually I saw it within, probably within 40 hours of it coming out in the UK, I saw it on the big screen with nice vibrant colours. And I'm sorry to be that negative guy, but I didn't like it. Just couldn't get my head into it. I've still never got into it, despite watching it probably in the region of 20 times over the last 20 years. I've never been a fan of it. Uh, But hey-ho, I've never been a fan of most action-adventure films released after 1985, so maybe The Phantom Menace, for me, is par for the course. Anyway, that's my story. It involved uh, a terrible crime being committed, and I hope that seeing as 20 years have passed, the full force of law doesn't come down on me. Thanks for a great podcast, Stephen, and thanks for a great website. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hopefully you're well in the clear now, Declan, and your suffering should at least equate to potential time served. Okay, returning stateside, here's another Matt Fox with a story that I I can't help but title, From the Driving Range to Naboo. Hi, this is Matt Fox. I do a podcast called This Week in Star Wars and co-host another called Galaxy of Toys, but I'm here today to talk about the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace. Nowadays, I live in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., but in 1999, I was in North Carolina finishing up my first year of law school. Back then, like I do today, I avoided what we now call spoilers. I don't think we called them that back then. So I really only got what was released through Star Wars Insider, or I don't even remember if there was an effective Star Wars website back then. So obviously, one of the first memories I have from back then is the first trailer that came out in the fall of 98. Um, I remember, of course, back then I had dial-up internet, uh, like probably 99% of us. Uh, But fortunately, I had the ability to go into school and use their high-speed internet as it was uh, to download the trailer a little more quickly. But I still remember it took a couple hours, probably because of just, you know, demands of people downloading it, I suspect, as much as anything. Um... That trailer, I still maintain, is is fabulous. It It's one of the top trailers I've ever seen. It got me more excited about that film, a film that I was already very excited about, than anything else. If you watch it today without a knowledge of 
what you're watching. And if you try to put yourself back in the mindset of 1998, I still think it evokes and promises an awesome experience. You can superimpose whatever you want on those images and make a great Star Wars film, possibly, probably a better Star Wars film than we got. But that only, you know, heightened my excitement for the film. And of course, even though we spent all that time downloading it on the computer, Entertainment Tonight or somebody, of course, showed it on TV that day or a couple days later, and I recorded it. And between that recording and what I had on the computer, I don't know how many dozen times I watched it. It was that good, and I still think it is that good. And of course, the trailer came out at the same time, maybe the same day. I don't remember exactly as the teaser posters, you know, the Anakin with the Vader shadow. That poster, though the image, the landscape, as well as the portrait images, are two of my favorite Star Wars posters. I still love those images. And again, at the time, not knowing what we were going to get, you could think anything. And so a movie that we were already really hyped for, those expectations were getting ratcheted up by an awesome trailer and awesome posters. And then several months later, I guess the next big event for me would have been the uh, Midnight Madness and the toy release which I believe was on May 3rd. I know it was a Sunday night because my girlfriend made me wait till the X-Files was over to go get in line at Toys R Us. Huge lines. That was the biggest line I experienced for The Phantom Menace was the Midnight Madness toy line, bigger than for any of the showings of the film that I later saw. We are the dorks of the century. Get ready for the merchandising madness because a brand new batch of Star Wars toys lasted into stores across America. Woo! Get it. The crowd went wild at FAO Swartz to be the first to get their hands on the stuff. And here's a glimpse of what every kid will be clamoring for. Oh yeah, Darth Maul. He's the bad guy with the double-edged lightsaber, and he's the one I'm coming here to see. I'll take a heart attack if I have to get inside. This is my first trip. I'm going to give it to a friend, come back, do another trip, come back, do another trip. I'll pay the credit card bills later. What do I care? And buying is just what toy stores are counting on, with the hot new Lego set and everything from Darth Maul to the double-bladed lightsaber. Analysts predict spin-off sales could exceed $1 billion. And nobody should sleep until episode one, The Phantom Menace, comes out. This was a Toys R Us in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it was truly midnight madness. People were jumping over each other. I literally saw kids fall to the floor and nearly be trampled. Action figures were being grabbed by the armful and being thrown into carts. It was amazing. And then for the next several weeks, even before the movie came out, you saw that merchandise everywhere. And it was on TV. There were news stories about it. Star Wars was new again. And maybe we become jaded in this Disney era, but at the time, that was something special. That was new, even with the special editions a couple of years before. The penetration of that film into the culture was amazing. And I just soaked it all in more than any other movie. Not just Star Wars movie, more than any other movie. I remember how I felt. I remember the weather. I just remember the environment around me for... Midnight Madness for for all of this Phantom Menace stuff. I was that excited about the film. Many, I think, almost all of us were. We this is obviously before the prequels. People were not, you know, had not turned on Star Wars yet. Even with the special editions and the Han shot first and all that, people were legitimately excited about the Phantom Menace. Now remember, this is spring 1999. There's no such thing as a bad Star Wars movie. 
cranks and outliers and contrarians aside, everybody really liked every Star Wars movie we had ever seen. And why would anyone think The Phantom Menace would be any different? Why wouldn't it be just as awesome? That's what we all thought. So I spent the summer of 1999 clerking in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And on the actual release date of May 19th, I was traveling from North Carolina to Wisconsin, and I'd stopped for the weekend in Michigan, where I'm from. I had arranged to see The Phantom Menace with one of my old college roommates at what is now the AMC Theater, and I think it was then as well, in uh, Livonia, Michigan. Uh, this theater was brand new at the time. It was uh, at the period when the new theaters were all opening with the stadium seating and, and the much more you know elaborate experience. So you know everything about that, the picture, the seats, the environment, that was great. Now, my friend had bought the tickets. In fact, I think he might have bought them online. I'm not even sure. He was not the type who would have gone to wait in line. But I guess the point is, I didn't have to wait in line to get the tickets. And really, even going to see the film, I remember we went early, but not hours and hours early. Uh, We were able to get good seats, uh, but the theater was full by the time the show started. I remember there were kids playing with lightsabers in front of the screen. I remember there was cheering when the Lucasfilm logo came up and Star Wars flew across the screen, and then the movie started. I have very little actual memory of watching the film or what my reactions were at the time. But after it was over and I started thinking about it, I remember maybe down deep I said I knew it wasn't quite as good as the original films, maybe not near as good as the original films, but I didn't want to say it. I wasn't sure yet. I'd only seen it once. My friend clearly was hemming and hawing and sort of felt the same way. I remember, oddly, the only question that I put forward on the way home that night was, are we legitimately supposed to not know that Darth Sidious is Palpatine and is going to become the Emperor? Because it's really clear that it is. But I certainly didn't let my doubts and fears and suspicions deter me. I have seen The Phantom Menace in the theaters more than any other film, easily. And I went again twice the next day. I had already bought the tickets. I saw it by myself in the first showing of the morning. I think it was about 10 a.m., same theater. And then had agreed to go back again that afternoon with my cousin, who was a Star Wars fan, even though she was only eight or nine at the time. And man, did she like Jar Jar. And by that time, I had already sort of formed my opinion of the movie, which I still hold today, which is that it's pretty boring. The pod race great time to sleep even though that's supposed to be sort of the mid-movie high excitement crescendo but once it gets back to Naboo and you have the final battle it's pretty all right I still think that lightsaber battle at the end between Maul and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan especially the Maul on Obi-Wan stuff that's the best lightsaber battle we've seen in any of the films and so that's where I was as the summer of 99 settled in like I said I spent it in Milwaukee I didn't really know anybody there except for the people that I was meeting at work. And so I settled into sort of a routine where two or three nights a week I'd go to the driving range and then I'd go see The Phantom Menace. And I think every time it was at the AMC Theater, again AMC, at the Mayfair Mall in Wauwatosa. But very quickly that routine turned into go to the driving range, buy a ticket to see The Phantom Menace. But before I'd go into the theater, I would play that Sega arcade game, the Star Wars trilogy, you know, with the great graphics, it's awesome game. Well, I'd play that from start to finish before I'd even go into the film. And by that point, it was usually around the pod race, so I would have missed all the boring stuff, and I'd be there for the final battle on Naboo. 
And that's really how I experienced the Phantom Menace in the summer. Over and over again, probably close to 20 times. And like I said, I don't think I've seen any movie as many times in the theater as The Phantom Menace. Really, probably the only competition might be Return of the Jedi, which, when it hit the dollar theater in late 83, and I was 12 years old, I remember biking up there quite a bit. But I don't know if I went 20 times. So that's really my experience with The Phantom Menace in the summer of 99. I went a lot. I liked it. I absorbed it all in. Now, of course, the show is not about Phantom Menace reviews or how we feel now. I think everybody's relationship with that movie probably evolved over the years. I know mine certainly did, although I still like it. Uh, It's not the best Star Wars movie, not the worst. But the one thing that it's got that none of the others will have, even The Force Awakens or whatever, you know, might await us. It was the movie that brought Star Wars back. Yes, the special editions sort of whet our appetite, but since 1999, up until now, Star Wars has never really left us. Good or bad, right or wrong, that started 20 years ago, and we should all acknowledge that. So those are my thoughts on the summer of 99. I want to thank Steve for for arranging this and conceiving it and putting it all together and allowing me and everybody else to be a part of it. It was a lot of fun. Always like looking back and reminiscing about things Star Wars. And so, once again, this is Matt Fox, and as they say, we'll see you at the movies. With all the productivity loss at workplaces across the country on the movie's opening day, there was also bound to be a pandemic of truancy from those still gaining their education. I was one of them, and uh, here's a story from another. Mike Cooper from New Haven, Connecticut. Hey, Steve. It's Mike Cooper calling from Hamden, Connecticut. And, oh, man, 1999 was quite the year. I was a freshman in college, and I was a total dork. A few weeks before the movie had premiered, of course, was the Toys R Us Midnight Madness. And um, I had been waiting outside for hours for the store to open up, and I was on the front page of the New Haven Register for being the first in line for <laughs> for the opportunity to buy Phantom Menace toys at the Toys R Us in Milford, Connecticut. Um, man, I bought every single one of those figures. I could not wait to see the thrilling adventures of Rick Ollier <laughs> in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Um, then a couple weeks after that, obviously, the movie came out, but I seem to remember the tickets going on sale sometime before the movie was actually released. So I camped out at the Hoyt Cinema in Brantford, Connecticut, and I bought tickets for just about every single person that I knew, which was, I don't know, 12 people. No, I think they only had like you can only buy uh, 12 tickets at a time, so I bought 12 tickets, and of course they were all claimed. Uh, but the thing is, the actual night of the premiere, I had a uh, I had a final, being that it was my freshman year of college, and I was going to a state school which required me to take this ridiculous math class that I don't even remember anything about. Um, I was an art major. I was studying illustration at this state school, and I was taking a, a math class, and uh, I skipped the exam. 
And uh, I obviously failed the class and made my parents very proud. And at the time, I thought it was completely worth it because Star Wars was way more important to me. And this is going to be the biggest cultural event of my entire life. And there was no way that the movie was going to be bad in any way at all. Um, and it was what it was. <laughs> I think we all know. And um, I just kind of lied to myself and said it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And I think I saw it about 12 or 13 times that summer. Um, I hope this call is just between us. You're not going to tell anybody. Uh, I'm telling you some really personal things right now. Um but I know the movie gets a lot of hate, and people like to rag on it. It wasn't the best movie ever made. It wasn't that great, but, um, you know, it is what it is. Kind of boring, though, actually. I uh, I don't think I could sit through the whole movie uh, without getting really uh, heavy in the eyes. But, uh, hey, I skipped a college exam just to see it the night it came out. Anyway, talk to all you dorks later. The Phantom Menace was 18 months ago, Tim. I know, Bilbo. Okay, just, it still hurts. You know, that kid wanted a Jar Jar doll. Kids like Jar Jar. Why? What about the Ewoks? Hey. All right, here's a memory from another familiar voice. I'm happy to welcome back Mark Newbold, who was the podcast's very first feature presentation guest, to talk about his journey from the UK to America for episode one and what the aftermath would come to mean for him and his fandom. Hi, I'm Mark Newbold from Tracks. This is my experience of seeing The Phantom Menace 20 years ago. 20 years ago? Where's that gone? Like any other fan of the era, I was hugely excited. Well, first just hearing that, that, that George was even going to go back and make the prequels, because in much the same way that we waited for 7, 8 and 9, which felt more and more mythical as the years went on, 1, 2 and 3 was kind of the same. We never really thought we'd get it, never thought it would come. And when it did, the old com as was to lead us through it, you know, the making of and through the special editions. But the real moment when it, it became real and, and really hit, you know, we'd seen images of Ewan and Liam and Natalie primarily on com, But to, to actually see that first teaser back in November of 98, downloading it on 56k dial-up, I was on AOL, waiting for that tiny little letterbox video and waiting and waiting and then watching and re-watching and the excitement was insane i was determined to go and see that film in the states I was just probably too young and, and too far away from london to get to the premiere down in london in 83 not that my dad would have ever driven me down to london from where we lived a couple of hours away that's why i remember seeing the triple bill in a local cinema near to us in Sutton coalfield so i'd seen the triple bill which i don't think came to the states if i remember correctly uh, and of course, the special editions in '97, we were able to do our own triple bill again. But uh, yeah, I really wanted to see Fol- uh, Phantom in the States, so uh, me and my best mate organised a trip to California by way of Chicago, which is why I'm so excited for celebration this year because it's 20 years since I went to Chicago. And going to Chicago was cool. All the merchandise was available by the time we got there, sort of four or five days before Phantom came out, and so I was able to buy the audio book and get them the art of and all those kind of books you know uh, pick up a couple of the figures and the novelization if i remember rightly i've got all four now with padme anakin ben and maul i think on the cover the delray ones the terry brooks novelization but i think i got the anakin one if i remember rightly in chicago and and seeing phantom going into the 19th of may i think it was a showcase i think at the mgm grand 
and going in and seeing the film with a room full of fans, half of them in costume, hugely exciting. Again, with my best friend who I've known since I was three. Grew up together, watched and played Star Wars together as kids with all the toys and we'd written fanfic and, you know, all sorts of creative stuff. We were role-playing all through the 80s, you know, West End game stuff, the mid-80s, all the way through in the 90s. To see it with him and the music comes up and the Fox logo comes up, which is still missing, badly missing. And I remember coming out from that first screening and turning to Paul and saying, what the f*** just happened? Because I didn't get it. I just didn't get didn't get it the first time I saw it. It was it was not what I expected. Phantom Menace compared to Star Wars Emperor and Jedi tried something different and it took a long time to, you know, really get my head around that. Well not that long actually, because the next day we went back to the cinema and we watched it a second time. The second time it was a bit more ah I'm starting to get it now. Yeah, that makes more sense. And on that trip we actually saw it six times. Bearing in mind it didn't come out in the UK till the July. This is May. So we were way ahead of the curve in terms of seeing it in relation to our friends. So when we came back from the States and all our mates were going, what's it like? What's it like? Is it any good? By the sixth viewing in that week and a half or whatever it was, we could confidently go, oh yeah, this is good. It'll take some getting used to, but it was new Star Wars. And as now you think, you know, you don't go and see a Star Wars film just once at the cinema. You're going to go and see it two or three times. I think the amount of times I've seen Force Awakens at the cinema in every format I could see it solo. I can't get in. I think of all the new films, Solo's the one I've seen the most because it's probably the one I like the most. Thinking originally of doing the counting down thing and getting in the line, I don't have emails from that time. It's 20 years ago, but I do remember being in contact with people. And the plan was to try and see it at the Chinese. We would have just, we wouldn't have queued because we weren't, we didn't have the time. We just wouldn't have had the time. But we would have tacked onto the back end of the line just to get into a screening and the booking agent that had sorted out our flights did us proud with the flights and did it all a great price everything was good but in error booked us in the wrong hotel when it should have been the hotel directly opposite the Chinese which is where my mom and dad had stayed on a previous holiday they booked us into the same hotel chain but in Inglewood which is not that close not the area that we wanted to be so we were having 2am phone calls from Vegas Vegas we were only going to stay once uh, one day rather we were just going to stay for one day we ended up staying for four days because hey we were single guys in Vegas so we made the most of it it was great fun once it had come out everything just kind of took off because you've got a gap to fill you've got a 32 year gap from Phantom Menace to A New Hope and your brain goes into overdrive and you start thinking about what's next we didn't know then that Attack of the Clones was going to be set 10 years later we kind of knew where it was going I don't think we realised certainly at the time because everyone gets so wrapped up in the Jar Jar Binks issues and the wizard that's wizard Annie and all that sort of stuff the pod racing stuff undeniably brilliant the Maul versus Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon fight fantastic there's so much that's obviously great about it but so much that you can see why people didn't think the best of it it was quite contentious but now I would say Phantom has blossomed better than pretty much any I think better of Phantom now than I did certainly when it came out when I came out of the cinema and said what the was that at least I'm honest about saying it I I mean I'm I'm not shying away from the fact that I did not get that film at all the first time I saw it but now I think it's aged very very well it's a funny old trilogy I love all three of them I'm very fond of that era as a fan I mean I started 
lightsaber that was really where it started and lightsaber launched june 28th 99 which was before it came out in the uk so it was kind of between the american and uk release and it really inspired me to get busy and and do stuff online and i'd been doing stuff online for a few years doing general sci-fi sites and and star trek sites which is my other passion but phantom really gave me the the energy to want to go and do more which has not really stopped phantom menace was was a very special time and kind of interesting in that it was the first star wars film to come out in the internet age phantom menace thank you very much and happy 20th anniversary and here's to many more years of enjoying such a cool film This next story comes from a man that probably wants to distance himself from this movie more than anyone I know. Yet somehow, when thinking of The Phantom Menace, I can't help but also think of him. That man is Ron Salvatore. Uh, Hey Steve, uh, Ron Salvatore here. Uh, Here's my contribution to this Phantom Menace thing that you're working on. Uh, First off, you know, thanks for drudging up a bunch of awkward memories. Uh, as though I had nothing better to do on a Sunday afternoon than reminisce about the Phantom Menace of all things. Uh, the first time I saw it, it was opening night in the Philadelphia area. I was with Todd Chamberlain, Michael Mensinger, Chris Nichols, Chris's future wife Heather France, and Heather's friend, uh, whose name I, I don't recall. I, I think that was the only time I ever met her. I have a photo of us waiting in line, so I'll send that to you. I don't know what you would do with it, but I'll send it to you anyway. Uh, I recall that the film had a pretty poor word of mouth for the, the few weeks there before... Uh, we saw it. There had been some news stories indicating that folks who'd seen early screenings were less than impressed. Uh, there were some bad comments about Jake Lloyd, etc. Uh, so I remember feeling prepared for something that was at least a little unexpected. Uh, you know, you, you walk into these things with the knowledge that a lot of people have maybe complained. Um, my main memory from that screening is hitting about the halfway point in the movie and realizing that I was still I was still waiting for it to get good. I felt like everything was taking place underwater and not just the actual underwater parts. Or like I was constantly waiting for the movie to turn a corner and move from the setup phase into the the phase that was Star Wars. Uh, It's at that point where you start rationalizing the experience, you know, and trying to to maybe appreciate the effects work or whatever. You know, oh, that's a Bulba. He was really technically well done. Uh, Afterwards, a local news crew was in the lobby and they asked Todd what he thought. Uh, He said something like, um, uh, well, um... It didn't really feel like Star Wars, which I still remember to this day. He was just kind of put on the spot and didn't quite know what to say. I wish they'd asked me for a quote. They didn't, but I wish they had. I probably would have said something like, I haven't been this disappointed since I waited in line for two hours to see Captain EO. Uh, In the car, there was a discussion of the movie. You know, I recall that that one or two folks really liked it and they were defending it. Um, This was the first time I heard someone say something to the effect of, you don't like it because you saw the original movies as a kid. Uh, That argument basically boils down to two elements. You know, one, kids will like anything. And two, the original trilogy has the same flaws as the prequels, and you just don't notice them because you saw the originals as a kid. Uh, Whatever, I guess. I I still don't agree with that, but that's what people said at the time. Um, I learned pretty quickly to avoid all discussion of The Phantom Menace. Uh, All things considered, I didn't really hate it or even feel too injured by it. You know, it was just was what it was. Uh, You know, I didn't think it was great. You know, I wasn't really bothered by that either. Uh, but for years, fans would just go at one another over this, you know, on email or discussion forums or whatever. Uh, and there were a lot of big fans who really defended the movie. You know, that was a, a big thing. A lot of people, I like The Phantom Menace, and this guy doesn't. 
Uh, weirdly, uh, that all ceased, I think, maybe in the late 2000s, when suddenly opinion just turned overwhelmingly negative on the prequels in general and the Phantom Menace in particular. And, and I know there are a lot of people now, you know, I, I won't name names, but I know people who were giant supporters and fans who are now super negative about it. So I don't know exactly what happened there. But there was a, a sea change, I would say, in fan perception. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you see that pattern repeated somewhat in the case of the sequel trilogy. Uh, maybe I'm being over-cynical about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see some changed opinions about that as well. Uh, but who knows? I mean, it sort of doesn't matter, I guess. Uh, I saw the movie a few other times. That just seemed like something you had to do if you were a Star Wars fan. Uh, you know, see The Phantom Menace a bunch of times. That was the thing for that summer. Uh, weirdly, I think its oddball, somewhat dissatisfying qualities caused some fans to see it multiple times. It was like they kept coming back to stare at the screen and somehow locate whatever whatever it was they didn't find on the previous six viewings. Uh, you know, maybe if I, if I see this one more time, you know, I'll finally get to it. Uh, that was another phenomenon I remember from that time. You know, the guy who sees The Phantom Menace 86 times and then finally, finally convinces himself that he likes it. Never understood what that was all about. Like, if you, you didn't get it on the 10th time or maybe even the 11th, you know, if it took you 86 times before you liked it. Um, but there was a lot of that. Uh, anyway, I know I saw it with Will Grief, Robin Mantia, Rob Johnson, and a few other guys from my birthday in that year. I remember that Robin Mantia really hated it, but he went to see it again anyway because it was my birthday. Uh, he kept doing impressions of Jar Jar, especially the all sinking and no power part. <laughs> all sinking and no power? Uh, use of the Booma was a favorite expression for years afterwards. You know, you tried out a good use of the Booma uh, at some point. Jar Jar, use him the Booma! I also saw it with Todd, Will, Martin Thurn, and I think a couple of other guys later on that summer when it was projected digitally somewhere in New Jersey. Uh, do you remember when digital projection was actually a novelty and people would travel miles to see something projected at substandard resolution just so they could feel like a cyberpunk? You know, it's like, I think uh, digital was quite a bit less than film, but somehow we went to see it and was like, oh, it's digital projection. Like, I don't know what that was all about. The film will never break. Like, like that's happened a million times when you see something, the film breaking. Uh, cyberpunks are not. We all fell asleep during the movie. Uh, we'd done a big outdoor toy show earlier that day, and it had been like 100 degrees out, so we were all pretty tired. The Phantom Menace was just not exciting enough to keep us going that night. I know I zonked out just as soon as Shmi Skywalker walked on screen. You know, as soon as Shmi showed up, that was it for me. Uh, um, I remember that we agreed to, uh, to gather at a diner somewhere after the movie uh, for a meal and, and discussion or whatever. Um, there was no GPS at that time and none of us had cell phones. So we did that thing where everyone follows the person in the lead car. We were in New Jersey where freaking Marco Polo would get lost without GPS. So of course we all got lost. Uh, and th I know I managed to link up later with some of those guys at, at some diner, I think a different one. Uh, we, we never saw Martin again, so Martin Thurn got lost. And of course, there's no cell phones, so nobody could get in touch with him. And so later on, like through email, he just told us that, you know, he got annoyed. He just turned around and drove home towards D.C. <laughs> that was the last anyone ever saw Martin that night. I always thought that was funny. Um, oh, I also forgot, when I saw the movie on my birthday, Will gave me a Watto eraser. Uh, for years, that was my only 3D Phantom Menace item. You know, it's the only thing I owned that was 3D and Phantom Menace related. Uh, I, even I even included that uh, eraser in a mock photo of, of my collection that I took, and I used to post that photo whenever I wanted to make fun of people who were limelighting. So it was like a picture of a Watto eraser, a beat-up Princess Leia figure, and like a trading card. You know, that was my, my collection. Anyway, people remember that photo. So, uh, Some folks I know really went all out buying Phantom Menace stuff. 
You know, even I have one thing, but other people, they were buying stuff like you wouldn't believe. I recall that Todd Chamberlain really went all out. He established like a complex network of local mules who would ferry every single piece of Taco Bell merchandise right to his front door. He had everything. He had boxes upon boxes of store displays and cup toppers. There were Sebulbas coming out of Sebulbas. Uh, at some point, I was at his place and looking through that stuff. I turned to him, and he had this slightly mad look on his face as if to say, my God, what have I done? I think he ended up uh, giving a lot of that stuff to, some, to, to Goodwill, where you know, kids who went to Goodwill would, would have the misfortune of buying a Sebulba for like five cents or whatever. Um, all right, well, uh, hopefully that was all right. That's all I got. I can't believe it's like seven minutes, but I hope this works out well, and I hope that nobody else is traumatized by uh, searching through their memories of The Phantom Menace. The final chapter in this walk down menace memory lane will bring us back to where it all started, the Golden State of California, and more specifically, Tinseltown. Lift off is still a week and a half away, but special audiences in Los Angeles and New York were treated to a sneak preview that sent them into orbit. I got an invite, yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Good special effects, good story. Lives up to the originals. They're gonna love it. They're gonna go nuts. It was amazing. A lot of action, a lot of noise. It was cool. The screenings were for film industry folks and their families. But one ticket went to L.A. Laker Shaquille O'Neal, who says the film's success is a slam dunk. What'd you think of it? I think it was an excellent movie. I think Mr. Lucas did a fabulous job. Special effects were wonderful, and the storyline was wonderful. I'm going to probably come back and watch it a couple more times. The rest of Hollywood is counting down, eager for another visit to that galaxy far, far away. I chose to end with Brennan Swain's story because it offers a side-by-side look at this movie's immediate and latent effects that I'd bet many will relate to. Camcorder in hand, Brennan documented the midnight screening and opening day scene in Los Angeles. Hey everybody, my name is Brennan Swain and I am doing my contribution here for the Star Wars at the Movies Phantom Menace retrospective. Um, I am... A lifelong Star Wars fan saw A New Hope in the theaters uh, back when I was uh, five or six years old and uh, was highly anticipating the release of The Phantom Menace. And I guess the hype for me started um, back in 1998 when I waited in line for about two hours to see Meet Joe Black, uh, the movie that had The Phantom Menace trailer attached to it. I think it was um, November of 1998. Uh, waited in line for about two hours uh, with uh, my buddy uh, Kevin Leneve, a fellow Star Wars collector. And um, actually, one of the cool things about that was Elijah Wood, uh, Frodo himself, uh, was in line for the movie as well. And he was there anticipating the Phantom Menace trailer. Uh, what I have to go along with uh, my addition here to the podcast is I also took some footage. I've got about 22 minutes of footage. Um, I took a video camera with me to the actual uh, opening day, May 19th, 1999. Of course, that was a 12.01 a.m. showing, which means I uh, started the filming on May 18th, 1999. And uh, I knew that the hype was so big that I'd want to capture it. And uh, what's kind of cool is watching it 20 years later. It was filmed on a high eight camcorder. So the um, quality is pretty bad. 
but it is pretty cool to remember back to the days when it was a true blockbuster, meaning the line went around the block, and uh, pretty much shows that in my video. All right, well, here we are. We're in line for The Phantom Menace. Finally, we've waited for this thing for years and years and years, been uh, reading everything on the internet, hearing all about this thing, and now it's time. We're finally here. It's about 7.30. Waited in line last week and got tickets. Now we're just kind of hanging out. The movie is going to start at 12.01. I'd waited in line pretty much all day long to see that 12.01 a.m. showing. Was super, super excited about the movie. Uh, was there with some good friends. Uh, Kevin Leneve, uh, same friend I mentioned before, waited in line uh, for the trailer with me. Josh Ling, Constantine Nasser, uh, John Williams, not the uh, conductor, but a fellow Star Wars collector who has since uh, passed away. Uh, so it was good to see his face on the video. Um, it was one of the best theaters to see the movie in because it's one of the theaters that at the time a lot of um, Hollywood movies premiered in. So it was really cool to get to see it there. And I was so excited about the movie that I watched the whole thing at the Westwood Village Theater from uh, 12.01 to 2 in the morning. Then I jumped in my car and went over to Hollywood to get in line at Man's Chinese Theater uh, got there about 3 a.m., uh, grabbed a couple hours of sleep with a friend um, in the Hollywood area and then uh, jumped in line probably 6 or 7 in the morning at Man's Chinese and sat in line there all day long to see the 3.30 p.m. showing. Uh, so the hype's big when you know you're going to wait in line pretty much all day to see the movie once, then get a couple hours of sleep and then wait in line all day the next day to see it again. Now back over here to our group. What's up, Kevin? Okay, I'm gonna go make it. An hour and a half till they let us in. That's what they said. They let us in at 10, so you're gonna yeah. sit there for a couple hours, huh? Yeah, it's alright. Stand out here for a couple hours. Let me give you some advice here. I'm getting some this, advice. This, this, well, no, I'm just gonna give you my opinion. This film was so good, I saw it last week, that I, after seeing it, and was ridiculed by my friends because I was going to go to the theater to wait for tickets again. I slept over at Man's Chinese that night to get tickets because it was that good. Ah, uh, damn what the critics say. Damn what the critics say. Um, so it's fun watching the footage, uh, being at both places, looking a little bit younger. Uh, one of the crazy things about it was watching my reaction after the movie. All right, it's probably kind of dark. It's probably kind of hard to see me right now. But anyway, I just you need to hear me because it's the last time I'll see you again. Next time I talk... I will have seen the movie. Phantom Menace will finally happen. I've been waiting 16 years and uh, spent a lot of time. The hype's been immense. It's been crazy. It's been fun. Been in magazines and on TV. Everything's going crazy. It all leads up to this. It'll all be over with in a few hours, but I'll let you know what I think in a little bit. Bye. May the force be with you. Well, it's over. And it happened. And all I can say is wow. It was unbelievable. It was, uh, I guess, everything I could have hoped for. I'm kind of tired now seeing that it's 3 o'clock in the morning, but I've already walked. This is probably jumpy, but I'm actually over a man's Chinese already. I'm walking up. I'll show you the line happening here at 3.30, but the movie was un unbelievable. Yeah, it really, at first it started off a little bit slow, but... Uh, and I can see where some of the critics maybe didn't like some of the some of the characters. Yeah, the Gungans weren't the greatest thing in the world, but uh, I loved it. It was it was Star Wars. You know, it made me feel, made me love. It was good stuff. So anyway, 
that's how I feel. That's my quick quick synopsis and review. But uh, let's head up to the line and see what's happening here at 3.30 in the morning. The man's Chinese. Well, first of all, since it was uh, filmed on a camera where you're not looking at yourself like we now do do nowadays on our phones, um, I didn't know the f- footage was on or that it was on uh, Zoom. And so uh, all you can see is my eye. But I talk about how much I loved the movie, which really made me laugh. And I think at that point, the hype just hadn't died down. I just anticipated this movie so highly um, that I convinced myself that I liked it. And, and certainly maybe I did at the time. Um, but now I look back and The Phantom Menace is is easily the last on my list of all the Star Wars movies. Um, I I find it unwatchable now. Uh, So the fact that I loved it so much that night, and I actually ended up seeing it 12 times in theaters, um, it was just so crazy, I think, just to think about uh, the love that I had and many people had for Star Wars from when we were kids and the fact that we got a chance to see this movie again in the theaters um, just made me love it immediately. I know a lot of my friends didn't like it. Um, maybe they uh, realized it at the time. I just didn't. Uh, but it, it really was. It was a great experience, a great time, regardless of whether uh, it was a great movie or not. Uh, and it was it was obviously a different time back then. Uh, we don't nowadays we go online, reserve our seats for the movie we're going to go see. We don't have to wait in line for uh, for hours or days or even weeks, as some people did back then. Um, but I hope uh, everybody enjoys uh, the footage and um, can't wait for episode nine. It's hard to believe that 20 years later, a similar sense of anticipation and optimism is still lingering, with episode 9 coming out at the end of this year. Will we ever learn? I don't know. Probably not. In any case, I hope this look back at episode 1 and the summer of 99 was at least a bit cathartic, and at most, a reminder of just how momentous and fun a time it really was. Thanks again to everyone that recorded their stories. It was an absolute blast to hear them all, and I really, really appreciate the time you took to jog your memories and share them. Show notes with lots of photos, links to period news coverage, and full versions of both the Waiting for Jar Jar documentary and Brennan's awesome Hollywood footage are available in the episode post on the main site, StarWarsAtTheMovies.com. And beyond that, there's a new retrospective post featuring a wide variety of Phantom Menace theatrical collectibles on the blog, with numerous contributions from friends of the project, so thanks for all the help with that. I was also recently honored to uh, join in on historian Michael Coates' 20th anniversary episode one piece for The Digital Bits. If you've never read any of Michael's Star Wars theatrical retrospectives, you are sorely missing out. I refer to them all the time, and I was really happy to share my my ramblings for the Q&A section in his most recent article, and I'll put a link for that in the show notes as well. And if that still isn't enough menace for you, I'm I'm thrilled to say there's even more. I've been told I'm 
not the greatest at self-promoting, but I'm trying to take a few modest steps here. Well, one, anyway. A listener giveaway! I have two prize packs that include a set of Episode 1 Shirashi, which are these incredibly cool Japanese movie flyers that have both the, the teaser and the one-sheet poster art on them, along with a nifty little Star Wars at the Movies fridge magnet. All you need to do for a chance to win is follow the project on Facebook, Instagram at, uh, at Star Wars at the Movies, or Twitter at SW at the Movies. Uh, I guess the, the Twitter handle is a new development too. And rate and leave a review for the podcast on iTunes or whichever other platform you listen on. Just snag a screenshot of your review and, and send it in via direct message or email to starwarsatthemovies at gmail.com and I'll draw two winners in the next couple of weeks. Any aid in getting the word out about the show would be, well, you know who said it best. Mm, any help here would be hot. <laughs> Alright, I promise the episode oneness ends here. With several exciting interviews in the can, new episodes on the classic films will be on the way soon, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening, and remember... You can't take a royal highness there, the huts are huts are huts are gangsters. Gangsters.